All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Bizzlecast 30. This is a huge deal for me. I'm not going to say I can't believe I made it to 30. I'm just thrilled about it, and this is the perfect podcast because this is the ultimate nerd epic extravaganza where we are going to talk about comic books, Star Trek, Star Wars, artificial intelligence, classic science fiction, and so much more. So, I'm here with my friend Matt Goisman, who is a friend from Wesleyan, who we've stayed in touch uh, via Facebook. We are going to talk about Star Trek today, and we're also going to talk about Star Wars, the relation between the two, the similarities and differences, and the feeling that Matt and I share that Star Trek doesn't get enough credit for being as important or more important than Star Wars in terms of science fiction and its legacy on our society. We are also going to be talking about DC versus Marvel and the comic book cinematic universes that continue to expand and what we love and don't love about them. We're going to talk about the lack of confrontation of critical and realistic issues, about technology and artificial intelligence in many of these major sci-fi properties. We're going to talk about Isaac Asimov and Frank Herbert and the birth of modern sci-fi and a whole lot more. So before we jump in, Matt, welcome. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, my pleasure. Uh, so my name's Matt Goisman. Grew up in Brookline, which is just outside of Boston. Graduated Wesleyan 05. I was a religion major. Thought about being a rabbi for a long time, then decided I didn't like going to temple very much, so that was out of the question. Uh, and then about five years later, went to journalism school. Now I'm a sports reporter with the Cape Cod Times. And in my spare time, I watch as much science fiction and fantasy stuff as I can, because frankly, if I live sports 24-7, I'd probably go crazy. A man of my own heart, sports and science fiction. Goddamn. How, how did we not connect earlier? This is great. So uh, before we jump into the Star Trek and sci-fi stuff, I'm just out of curiosity. Did you think long ago that you would end up doing sports-related stuff, or did it just kind of happen? <laughs> so right towards um end of our time at Wesleyan, last two years were 2004, 2005, this was about the time I was starting to realize the being a rabbi was not going to be in the future. This was <laughs> the same time the Red Sox got really, really, really good. Uh-huh. And that's when I really started to get into sports because I saw sports as a, uh, an anthropological phenomenon, which was what we study in religion all the time. And so that was when I started thinking about sports reporting. Uh, I went to a lecture by a, a well-known sports columnist in Boston named Dan Shaughnessy right after I graduated. Doesn't, uh, doesn't Simmons hate Shaughnessy? Most people do. I do okay. too because uh, he was really condescending to me. It kind of hurt my confidence, and that was mm. why it took me five years before I went to journalism school. Interesting. It's too bad he wasn't Bill Simmons. He may have had a better reaction. Who knows? So, anyways, so somehow Matt and I made the connection about... The Star Trek thing? Was it because of my Star Wars posts? And you were like, oh, I'd love to talk about Star Trek? Sound, sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know it's only happened the last few days, but, you know. Uh, so anyways, so so we connected on the nerdy stuff. I hope you're okay with the word nerdy, which we have reclaimed. Yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, I think we're at a point in our society where science is cool, right? And, and the geeks are the coolest, and so it's a perfect time to re-examine Star Trek and some other science. Look at the uh, hipsters out there. I don't hear them talking about the NFL very much. I hear them talking <laughs> about Doctor Who and, and uh, you know, maybe they'll talk about soccer, I guess. I guess that's the, like, hipster sport, but anything else, it's all nerdy stuff. 
So the uh, the closest uh, sports um, analogies I've been able to make with like sci-fi slash comic books, I've had a couple. Let me know what you think. Mm-hmm. The first is, you know, I'm doing a commentary for the first Avengers movie, which I haven't released yet, actually. But you know how they have you have to have all the comparative power fights. Right. You know, who's power? Thor, Cap, right. Iron Man, whatever. And if you're a comic book nerd or even grew up reading comic books like I did, did you uh, grow up reading comic books? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I got boxes of them. Right. And so I love the you got to have the good guys fight each other for the comparative sure. power stuff. <laughs> and I stop and think about, you know, I'm sort of nerdy. I'm sort of nerdily, you know, trying to like quantify the various superheroes' powers, and I'm like, I think this just comes down to being a math and sports nerd, you know? It's like <laughs> it's like sports betting. It's like, well, Thor's gonna kick Iron Man's ass, but if I get forty to one odds, I'm putting money on that, right? Sure. By the way, they make Iron Man way too powerful. We maybe we can get back to that, but anyways, uh, so we we do love the Marvel movies, the comic book movies, we love the sci-fi and the fantasy. And, uh, you know, the other sports compares that I made, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move forward here, is uh, I was trying to compare uh, the Winter Soldier to the Avengers movies, mm-hmm. and I, I said the Winter Soldier is like Ichiro, you know, <laughs> very high average, constantly on base, stealing bases, doing stuff. Young Ichiro we're talking about. He doesn't do that stuff so much anymore. No, but. no, the classic Ichiro, yeah. Uh, you know, running all over the outfield, diving over fences, Whereas the Avengers are like David Ortiz, you know? Lots of flaws. You can't even put him in the field half the time. <laughs> we'll go through long stretches, but man, can he win games for you by himself sometimes. You know what I mean? So totally. this, yeah, yeah. So anyways. It's also, and we don't have to talk about this for long, it's worth mentioning that what we're seeing and how sports are talked about now, nerds were doing decades ago. Fantasy sports is yes. Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. It's statistics-based you know, scenarios where you take people who have nothing to do with each other in real life and you put them in a a made-up arena and battle it out and who has the better stats wins. That's Dungeons & Dragons. We were doing that 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Fantasy has been around for 15, 20 years as anything popular. Yeah, and uh, as someone who was, you know, loved fantasy growing up, but also sports, I totally get where you're coming from. In fact, I think my love of advanced analytics, other than the fact I just grew up as a baseball kid, because my parents are, are, you know, both obsessed baseball fans, and so I grew up an obsessed baseball fan. And I was really into math growing up, and I'm, and, uh, I'm still, you know, just really into analyzing stats and, and sabermetrics and all this stuff. And yeah, it, it's similar to like role playing game stuff, yeah. you know? It, it's true. I, I was thinking about this recently. I talked with my dad about the, uh, the comparison between Dungeons and Dragons and, and fantasy football. But, you know, the sad thing is, you know, you, people who are condescending to nerds are like, well, you know, fantasy football is somehow rooted in reality more, but you're using so many fewer parts of your brain because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an almost completely passive activity. I mean, in terms of the time, like, yes, you build your squads and you draft, and then you wait all week and you just watch, you know, numbers right. go up on your computer. It, it's, you know, it, it's more of a zombie activity. When, I, I never did pen and paper stuff growing up just because I didn't have those kinds of friends. But I played either. a ton 
of role-playing games on my computer. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to decide whether to arm, you know, the broadsword with the, uh, you know, the the obsidian uh, magic stone in it versus, you know, some giant mace. I mean, it's like those sorts of things. It's exercising the statistical part of your brain. And just to to, uh, circle back about the hipsters and stuff, it's totally true. It's totally cool to be a nerd. And despite, you know, like the Academy... Uh, you know, trying to mock comic book movies at the Academy Awards, like, half the people there are in, you know, uh, comic book movies. I mean, if you just look at, you know, 2016, you know, I mean, in Doctor Strange, which is one of the most bizarre properties ever. Yeah, I hope they don't screw that up. They got some really interesting projects coming up in Phase 3, and I... I hope they do them well. I hope they do Black Panther well, because if not, people are going to go ape shit over the. Uh, line. No, Black Panther, I think, is going to be the best of all of Phase Three. But what we can get back to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you just look at the cast of Doctor Strange, you've yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch, who nerds already love, because Sherlock is a very hipster show. Totally hipster, but my dad likes it too. Yeah, my mom does too. <laughs> and I mean, he's you know he he's guaranteed to win an Oscar at some point in his life. It seems like. And then you've got Chiwetel Ejiofor, who also I think is going to win an Oscar at some point in his life. And then you've got Tilda Swinton, who I believe has won an Oscar. Um, and then you have Rachel McAdams. I mean, just the fact that you have that cast, yeah, you know, just shows how far we've come. And not only that. And and we'll use this to loop into the, uh, Star Wars, um, which is that, you know, Marvel, it, it's not just about getting the right characters and the best performances. It's about getting people who not only are okay with, but embrace the absurdity of being in comic book movies, who love it, you know, who love being in comic book movies, who love being in Star Wars movies, who are, are, are you know, like thrilled to go on these press tours and interact with the fans. I mean, even Robert Downey Jr., especially Robert Downey Jr., you know, it, it, it's not just that, you know, he, he's such a compelling uh, guy to watch on screen, but he has been sort of the team leader for all the Marvel actors. You know, he's constantly out there with the people, loves interacting with them, and uh, as sort of a general lead-in, I guess, to our sort of sci-fi, Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever discussion, with the social media as it is in 2015, is it enough to just be a good actor, especially when it comes to these properties, I ask you? No, I don't think so at all. I think you have to be willing to go out, go to the conventions, interact, show you know, it, not just uh, a willingness to be in it, but real enthusiasm for the concept of it. That's what I think still makes Iron Man, the first one, all those years ago now, one of the best in the films because they got really big-name people to sell out for that concept. They, yeah. you know, Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, who's won an Oscar, Jeff Bridges, who's won an Oscar. You know, you have two Oscar winners in a movie about a depressed millionaire who builds a right. robot suit to escape terrorists. I mean... Right. And I read Iron Man growing up just because I like the concept. I'm an X-Men dude, and we might get back to that. X-Men's my steez in terms of comics. I'm a DC guy, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, I never in my wildest dreams thought Iron Man in a very – not an obscure property, not one of their top selling, would become the centerpiece of their flagship of their franchise. Uh, I will say I have heard pretty definitively that Robert Downey Jr. had to beg Gwyneth to do that movie, and she loved it once she did it. But Right. 
said beforehand, she was like, there's no way I'm doing, like what you said, a movie about a depressed dude with a, you know, with a, what'd you say? With a, uh, uh, a super robot suit. suit. Somebody, yeah. I think Cracked called it, called it a murder suit, but. It's like an ultra, and when Mark Ruffalo's, you know, mentions that they created murder bots. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so we've got Star Wars coming up, and. You know, I want to frame our discussion somewhat around Star Wars, and I, we're going to talk culture, we're going to talk philosophy, maybe talk, get into some materialism-related things, um, and definitely sci-fi, and Matt and I are both huge Star Trek fans. We've seen most of the Star Trek movies. I've seen them all, I think, numerous times. With the original cast, it's been since I was a kid, but I'm pretty sure I watched those on VHS a lot. Um, seen the Star Trek Next Generation movies multiple times. A couple were good, a couple not great. Um, and then the two reboots. So I guess we're at a dozen movies with the 13th coming out in 2017. It'll be interesting to see how Star Trek and these other science fiction properties um, not just compete, but sort of uh, interact or play out with all the Star Wars and Marvel stuff coming out. I mean, Disney's releasing like, you know, eight big budget movies a year at this point. Mm -hmm. And so Matt and I, you know, in terms of the discussion, want to talk about how we think Star Trek's very underrated culturally and scientifically. Um, but as a bridge to that, because um, I do want to keep Star Wars in mind, um, let me ask you a, a, a two or three part question here. Okay. The, uh, the first is, you know, why Star Wars? Basically, <laughs> like, why why that movie, even after the terrible prequels, mm -hmm. um, somehow is more accessible as as weird as it is on the surface. And the the sort of one A question or whatever would be once you answer that, you know, in films like Star Trek, survive with the onslaught of Star Wars movies coming out. So if you're asking why Star Wars is more accessible than, than Star Trek, the, the easiest answer is simply the time commitment. You can sit down and watch the three Star Wars original movies, which you should right. see. There's no reason to watch the prequels ever, but whatever. Uh, you can watch them in three nights. You can watch them in a day if you want to you know, spend six hours watching movies. Star Trek is very hard to get into because you do have to start at least at the beginning of whatever series you're getting into, because they they peter out the little bits of character development very, very slowly. They build, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager are serialized, and they build towards season conclusions. But even Next Gen and the original series, if you don't know who the characters are, right. it can be very challenging to figure out who they are, what they do, Obviously, the captain is clear, but is Data more important than Geordi or Worf? Is Spock more important than Bones? What, uh, who goes on what kinds of missions? Right. That kind of stuff is really important to understand, to understand those shows. Right. And it's hard to do if you don't watch many episodes, multiple seasons worth. And they do rely on, if not scientific fact, then science concepts. And if you're not... If you're young or you're not scientifically minded, it can be hard to understand why what they're talking about is solving the problems they have. Star Wars, all you have to do is shoot something or stab it with a lightsaber and you've kind of solved the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to quote The Martian, Star Trek's all about sciencing the shit out of things, right? Exactly. 
Um, and as I talk about in previous podcasts, you know, the great thing about Star Trek, and even the J.J. Abrams reboot, which does, you know, stress the action element a little more, but even there, in terms of spirit, is that what's the idea? The best and brightest and strongest people in the future are freaking scientists, you yeah. know, not totally. some not some you know warrior army like an Ender's Game or something where we take the smartest kids and make them you know warlords on a galactic scale. Nope, they're going to deep space, and this of course is a huge problem I have with the new movies and a lot of the movies in general, which is they keep coming back to Earth unnecessarily. They should yeah. be in d- deep space the whole time. This is the Thor complaint, right? Like, mm-hmm. can we stop having Thor coming to Earth? Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, and, and Star Wars isn't a, is not about that. So okay, so we've identified that it's easier to get into Star Wars. Although you know, now that they have their ex, their own expanded universe, it you know, there's Star Wars Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels. There's the comic books. There's the regular books. I mean, I don't get into any of that stuff. It's smart that they finally decided to put all this in continuity and serialized it in that sense. So, you know, I mean, if you count all media in 2015, you really could spend as much time on Star Wars as Star Trek. Or, or, or at least, you know, the gap's closing in terms of experience. Or, or would you argue that that's not the case? Well, one thing I would say is, I don't know if you knew this, but in the last few months, somebody high up at, at Disney or in charge of the Star Wars projects has pretty much declared the grand majority of the extended universe stuff is no longer canon. No, I'm talking about new stuff. I'm talking about, like, starting this year, everything that they release is canon. Right. But that's still super streamlined compared with where it was four years ago, even. So, sure. yes, there's still a lot, and it's hard to get into. Um, it, I, I guess, I like you, I don't I don't really stray too far beyond the, the movies themselves. Right. But... They seem to be aware of that problem as well, which is why they've tried to scale it back as much as they can. The new Star Trek movies, I think it's the same thing. They get away from the science stuff. They make up Red Matter, which I know in your podcast you called out as a a problematic (laughs) concept. But they just say, okay, we have this stuff. It's going to solve our problem. Let's have a big spaceship battle. And people, regardless of whether or not it's true to Star Trek, people love that. They flocked to the first one. And they made the second one a pretty big financial success, too, because it gets away from some of the stuff that makes it inaccessible, I think. Doesn't make it good, but it, it, the way the new movies work make them easier to access if you are either not familiar with the, the pre-existing characters or just not super scientifically minded in how you approach problems, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, in fact, you know, I would argue that the technobabble associated with Star Trek has way more to do with the series than the movies. Oh, totally. I mean, even going back to the original series movies, but the ones I remember more, the four Next Generation movies, uh, I personally like Generations and First Contact. I, I can rewatch Insurrection and Nemesis just because I love the cast, but they weren't particularly strong efforts. I liked First Contact. That was about it. I didn't like that they leave Kirk buried under a pile of rocks on a random planet where, like, wolves can eat his body or whatever. And Insurrection, that was okay. And Nemesis, I, I hated. Mostly because Data was maybe my favorite character. Yeah. And they just offed him for no apparent reason other than to be mean yeah. and yeah. replaced him with B4 or brother thing, yeah. whatever. I mean, I, I, I think I like Generations just because I was so geeked to, to get yeah. a Star Trek The Next Generation movie. And honestly, the first two-thirds is pretty compelling. Um, mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, into the final third with the dream and then Kirk dying for a second time. Eh, it's sloppy. I will say about Star Trek Nemesis, uh, th- there's some stuff from Nemesis that has been stolen, including, so the, the, the green-blue design of Nemesis is very similar to the green-blue design of the Romulans in the Star yeah. Trek reboot movie. And you know how they crash the ship into the other ship at the end in order yep. to... Battlestar stole almost that exact image in its its series finale when they were attacking the Cylon homeworld or whatever. And the only way they could get in was to crash the... I mean, it's a different ship, but just the way it was filmed and executed and the, the, the kinetics of it. So, you know, I mean, there's a shared universe through all of these movies that make sense. But back to my last point, yeah. I mean, you can really watch the Star Trek movies, including the older ones, and not get too, you know, tied down by the techno babble. And that's why sure. they keep releasing them. I mean, if you look at the numbers on paper, none of the movies are killing it, although the new movies are doing really well. And despite Into Darkness being lackluster, which we'll get back to later when we get into more than nitty-gritty, you know, Star Trek Beyond, if it does well, could hit Guardians of the Galaxy territory, I think. I don't know. I mean, just in terms of $700, $750 million. And so, yeah, why do they keep making these movies? You know, I mean, it, they're not rolling in dough. No, but as long as they make any money, I think they're going to keep rolling the dice with product that is known quantities because this is a nostalgia-driven Hollywood, basically, and it's a lot easier to keep on producing a known product that people are already familiar with and you don't have to market it as hard, then it, it, that's easier than uh, creating an entirely new product, especially a sci-fi or fantasy product um, that people are just going to compare with something pre-existing anyway. So as long as they make any money, I think they're going to do well. My only fear with Star Trek Beyond, I think they're calling it, is yep. it has been so long between Star Trek movies, these new ones. Yeah, it's four years. Yeah, that's a long time to keep an interest in a franchise going. I mean, the thing the Marvel movies do so brilliantly is they have their schedule timed out. Although I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is I don't know if this is breaking news. They've moved up Star Trek Beyond to 2016. Oh, have they? Yep. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at it right here. It's supposed to be 2017. They bumped it up. The thing is, they got rid of the, the writer. They got Simon Pegg to write it, which should be hysterical because sure. he's hysterical. He was an, an inspired casting as, as Scotty. That was, I mean, the cast for the new movies is brilliant. He is easily one of the best decisions they made. Absolutely. And I think the major reason they're moving it up, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Also, Idris Elba is a major character in this right. movie, which would be great. Which is more nerd credit. I really liked Pacific Rim. I don't know what you thought of it if you saw it. It was, the acting of the main two characters was so bad, but it, it looked it looked really cool. No yeah, doubt. Yeah, it was just big robots punching big monsters for two yeah. hours, and that's all I wanted, and that's all it wanted to be. So I, I, I thought it was a super successful, fun movie. I mean, I love Guillermo del Toro. I actually just bought the, a used copy of Hellboy 2, one of my mm-hmm. favorite under-the-radar movies. So yeah, Ju- July tw- uh, 22nd, 2016. I don't know how that's possible, they they just began uh, principal photography in in June. Ah, I guess that makes sense. I think this is all about Zoe Saldana because oh. she has she has Guardians too. Then she's going to be in the Avengers movies, we think, uh, and then the final Avengers movies, and then she's got three Avatar movies. And you <laughs> if know, if those ever get made, I, those 
I am skeptical about that project, but they did make a lot of money, so I'm sure they're willing to roll the dice on them. But so just my final point was, and moving it up seems to be solving this problem a little bit, is you don't want too much space between properties to keep interest going. Marvel has their release schedule planned three years in advance. They release, you know, three big movies basically each year at the same time each year. So they have a May release. They usually have a late summer release and they have a March release, you know, and they'll screw around with stuff as they acquire new properties, getting Spider-Man back under their, you know, under their control, kind of change things up a little bit. But for the most part, they seem very aware that you can't go too long between these stories and have people maintain interest and knowledge of them. And so they have a framework in place to get them out very, very regularly. And Star Trek, I'm afraid, is taking too long are admittedly less time than I thought to get out new movies within its product, you know. All right, so there have been 12 uh, Star Trek movies. Yep. Six from the original uh, series, four from Next Generation. I comment in my Star Trek, I don't know if you listen to the whole Star Trek commentary, I love a Deep Space Nine movie. It's never happening, obviously. I, but... Yeah, I, I love Deep Space Nine. I thought that was a terrific yeah. show. Yeah. I, I wish they had done more with it post-show. I don't know why they didn't. I mean, my main complaint was that they should have updated the aesthetic a little bit for Deep Space Nine. And they, they did try to make it darker and grimier. It was the underbelly. It was a little bit more of the Moss Eisley Cantina feel, which was great. But, you know, for budget reasons or other reasons, you know, it just didn't take that next step. I just think, we can get back to this, and this is part of the reason that the Star Wars movies had problems, is that from, like, the early 90s into the early 2000s, there was really... Uh, it, it was a gap where there wasn't that much improvement in CGI technology for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And it took, whether you like the movies or not, the Matrix movies, you know, certainly moved it forward. The Lord of the Rings moved it forward big time. Oh, totally. Um, and, I mean, even if you don't love the Matrix sequels, just from an aesthetic standpoint, the Matrix movies and Lord of the Rings make Lucas look like an idiot 2000 to 2005, I think. I mean just so so amateurish that he couldn't get it done yeah the prequel cgi it looks fake it looks garish it looks so obvious that the actors are just walking around blue sets with blue props uh you know none of their facial wrecking uh you know faces the expressions they make none the of the lines yeah no the lines none of the yeah the way they're positioned yeah. It's very obvious that they are not looking at the thing that's on screen next to them, and they don't know how to react to that. Right. The Lord of the Rings and The Matrix both use CGI in a way that looks lived in, you know, yeah. that looks integrated with the rest of the universe. And what yeah. I hope the new Star Wars movies gets is, obviously you got to CGI some stuff. I'm pretty sure they didn't build a giant planet-sized Star Destroyer to crash into a desert. But hopefully they find a good balance between... Uh, CGI and real special effects. And that's why I think the old movies hold up is because those are models and actual props flying around and exploded. They're small, but they still look good because they're actually built with some craft, not yep. programmed and just animated. And so I, I, I actually have done... Um... And let me finish this before you start laughing at me. I have done commentaries unreleased for all six Star Wars movies, including the prequels. And in fact, I may only release the ones for the prequels just because I have such a fun time ripping it. But doing it and like I try not to just mock it, which you, which is hard not to do. 
Um, especially Attack of the Clones. I would argue the uh, uh, Phantom Menace looks better than Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones looks horrible from beginning to end. I mean, really, just terrible. There was at least some practical stuff in parts of Episode One. I, I just have a great time ripping them apart. And you know, it. it, it the only time I'm ever going to do commentaries on bad movies, it's like a bad Star Wars movie. You know, I can get through it. Uh, but I've tried doing commentaries on other mediocre movies before. I have not done them. But yeah, CGI, huge problem. I mean, if you look at the... And then we'll move on. But just in terms of the special effects evolution, um, and this will be a, a, a good uh, lead-up to sort of the J.J. Abrams connection here between Star Wars and Star Trek. So, you know, Matrix movies came out between 1999 and 2003. Mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings came out 01-02-03. And then the Star Wars prequel. 99, 2002, and 2005. 2002, Attack of the Clones came out, you know, made a pathetically small amount of money for what it should have been. The Two Towers came out, you know, freaking Peter Jackson, no one heard of this guy, first movie done well, made almost a billion dollars, completely outclassed the Star Wars movie of the year, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's just... It, <laughs> You can watch any part of, of Lord of the Rings, which is on a smaller budget, and it's just so far superior. And then, I know you said you don't love the movie, but from an effects standpoint, Serenity in 2005, on like a $35 million budget, looks better than Revenge of the Sith with oh, like totally. a $125 million budget. It's pretty ridiculous. And again, it speaks to, I think, what works with movies and what doesn't. And it doesn't matter what the genre is. If you like the characters, yes, you, that will sell a movie even with, with weaker effects or a smaller budget better than all the CGI background garbage you could possibly throw in it. I liked all the characters in Lord of the Rings. I felt that. I teared up a little bit when Gandalf dies in the first one. Even though I'd read the books, I think, by that point and knew he was going to come back, I bought that the other people were sad because they didn't know that, and so I felt sad. I love all the Firefly Serenity characters. You don't like anybody in the prequels for Star Wars, and so you don't care about anything going on, and a bunch of flashy lights and explosions isn't going to save it. Even in The Matrix, you like all those Matrix characters. You even like Smith just because he's such a badass bad guy. Well, in my in my main defense of Re- Reloaded, but especially Revolutions, I actually really like all the people of color characters they added in the sequels. I mm-hmm. I think Morpheus's relationship with Jada Pinkett is excellent and way more interesting and deep than Neo and Trinity. Oh. Um, I love the commander, Commander Locke. He's awesome. Ghost, Naomi's co. I mean, they just went all the way, you know, and, and almost holds it together. But just from an effect standpoint, they'll leave the Matrix and Lord of the Rings and stuff for now. You know, I watched Revolutions as part of my. I was going to do commentaries on all three Matrix movies. I decided just to do Reloaded. It's available uh, online. I believe it's Bizzlecast 19. But it, if you watch the final Zion battle in Revolutions, as, as pointless as the actual battle is, it looks fantastic. I mean, the mechs in that look better than, I hate to say it, Marvel movies. And, uh, you know, again, Serenity in 05 and the Star Trek reboot in 09 look better to me than part of the Marvel movies. I don't know what it is about J.J. Abrams. 
Um, and, you know, I think Whedon nailed it with Ultron finally. Maybe it was the technology, maybe it was the budget, mm-hmm. but, you know, the, the final space battle that's not a space battle in Serenity with the Reavers and the Alliance going at each other is so glorious. To me, that looked better than Guardians of the Galaxy. So, uh, just as a, f- uh, and then we'll really start d- d- delving into Star Wars and Star Trek. So, yeah, in terms of space operas, you said Guardians was one of your favorite movies. Would you say that, w- that was your favorite sort of non Star Wars or Star Trek space opera? Not that there's that many, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure. In part, because for me, it's hard to think of space operas when they're based off comic book properties, which comic books kind of have their own rules, even the ones that take place in space about how the stories are supposed to be told. Space operas work a little different. I No, I'd probably put Serenity above Guardians. But oh. both of those movies, again, Guardians, the ending is kind of flawed that final fight but yep. when the characters are great it works even when it doesn't you know yep. michael rooker i love that actor i love him Amazing. on walking dead so his floating flute arrow thing is just awesome because he is awesome <laughs> ain't never tasted term before <laughs> right you know zoe saldana and chris pratt was perfect uh, perfect uh, the weak part of that movie and it's a complaint a lot of people have about a lot of marvel movies is that the bad guy wasn't super well fleshed out yeah i was totally cool with ronan sometimes you got to go one dimensional villain to unite a team like that and his performance was so badass sure. but loki tom hiddleston kicks that role's ass he's wonderful at it and that i think is what sets the avengers up better than maybe guardians definitely in my opinion better than ultron right. is that ultron is a very literally mechanical bad guy one dimensional uh, and not, in my opinion, all that interesting. I think Ultron gets two-dimensional, but yeah. I, I, and I'm hoping they get Thanos right. I hope Thanos is really, really cool and scary and badass, because if he isn't, then that last Avengers movie is going to feel like a bit of a letdown, I think. All this Thanos teasing, it's not working for me. The facial design's getting slightly better. I think they should have gone full comic book. I know they wanted to get the performance capture with Josh Brolin, but yeah. it's just... It, I wasn't a Fantastic Four guy growing up, but the Thanos teasing is not working for me. I, I, I'm, I, you know, they're holding back the technology. I get that, but they better be holding back character development because I, I, Ronin is way more interesting than than Thanos. I think at least we knew what Ronin's motivations were, and Lee Pace. He's the sweetest guy on the planet if you see him in real life on TV or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just the physicality of what he did. And this is the thing. It's like the operative in Serenity. When you have a pirate crew who's very amoral at best, if not immoral, the only way to unite them and to, as Chris Pratt says, give a shit is to have a horrible genocidal bad guy, right? I mean, totally. Loki, Loki. not only would Loki not be sufficient to unite these pirate crews, but they wouldn't even know what to do because he would just be manipulating them the whole time. They needed a big baddie. And I think with Peter Quill's father and whatever else is going on, Guardians Volume 2 should have a more multidimensional villain. Marvel has a, has a villain problem. I it mean, does. Yeah. That's one thing I liked about Ant-Man is I actually bought Corey Stoll as a bad guy. I thought he was good. I understood why he acted the way he did and why his character was the way it was. I thought it was better fleshed out. Um, Thanos, we got to remember, has been on screen for a total of maybe five minutes in three movies. So we, I'm certain there's going to be a bigger reveal about who Thanos is and what he wants to accomplish. Maybe we see it in Guardians 2. Maybe we see it in Thor Ragnarok. 
you know, which Avengers pretty clearly set up. That's one thing I didn't like about the last third of it was the Thor going off into his own movie thing. Right. Everyone complains about that. Although you have to admit, everything about the creation of the Vision for me was spectacular, I thought. <laughs> it's literally a deus ex machina. It's a god blasting lightning into a machine and bringing it to life to solve their problem. <gasps> I love that. I love it. I love the design. Oh, right. That was convenient. But I'm talking about the actual filming of vision coming to life in awareness in, in as a mirror to Ultron. The scene works where he picks up Thor's hammer, you know, yeah. and I like the interactions with them later where he goes, this is a surprisingly well-bound <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to lose everything in the upswing. I, that interaction was great. It's terribly well balanced. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, well, we got a lot of balls in the air here. So let's bridge to Star Wars slash Star Trek. And I want to hear sort of your story. I think you might have seen more Star Trek. I mean, I've seen all of The Next Generation and I think most of Deep Space Nine. It's been forever. I have Deep Space Nine on my queue to rewatch, honestly. That's the one I'm most interested in rewatching. Aesthetically, The Next Generation these days just looks really outdated. Yes, um, it does. But, you know, Patrick Stewart's Patrick Stewart. Yeah. If you go, if you, I like handpicking like the Borg episodes and stuff, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, where he really gets to do stuff. So, uh, you know, you, you can sort of... Uh, um, Give me a quick little bio. I'll give you mine. I mean, so like most kids, I was born in 81. Where were you born? 82? 83. 83. Okay, I was born in 81. And so Return of the Jedi came out when I was two. And I definitely have a memory of being like four or five in the mid-80s. And we were at a family friend's house and they were airing Star Trek on TV. I don't even know if I knew what it was or saw the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But I do remember the feeling of just being completely blown away by it. And uh, and I loved it, and you know I I got the uh, well we'd rent the VHS, and then they you know they they released the THX versions, which are now really hard to get because mm-hmm. no they're the last uh, non fucked with versions. You know George Lucas, you know insanely and stupidly thought he had to correct his old movies somehow. I got those three the THX versions. Uh, they were given to me as a set on VHS for my bar mitzvah, and it was in my opinion one of the best presents i got oh yeah it's it's amazing it's amazing those movies are, are flawless and uh and yeah i watched them throughout childhood i i watched it well into adolescence and, and the flip to star trek happened around the same time as i flipped a, a little bit away from star wars part of that was the timing so just just for a, a, a quick chronology here and then we can sort of nerd out on on how we became such nerds so the first star trek motion picture was 1979 right the sixth and final movie from the original series the undiscovered country came out in 91 all right, uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, the TV show, had been on, I think, what three or four seasons by something 91? like that, yeah. And then the first Star Trek: Next Generation movie came out in '94, possibly while they were still making the show, or right afterwards. Um, I can't remember. So yeah, so it's that early '90s. There's so much going on in my life, right? I'm still loving Star Wars, but now I'm into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Totally ge- getting geeked out. My parents are buying me all the like technical manuals from Star <laughs> Trek, you know, which somehow trying to explain all this, te- you know, techno babble. I mean, I had a whole book breaking down the Enterprise, like floor by floor, <laughs> piece by piece. Yep. It was amazing. I love that shit. It was an awkward phase for me. I was like totally cool in elementary school and got back to being pretty normal in high school, but middle school. 
school. I hated everybody. <laughs> Everyone seemed stupid and interested in the wrong things. And so I just got him out a little nerd hall, computer games. Uh, actually, the Star Wars computer games was one of the things that kept me um, uh, with Star Wars. But also in the early 90s, I started reading comic books, you know, the X-Men animated series. My parents wouldn't let me watch that. They thought it was too violent. Really? Interesting. Yeah. My oh. parents were really restrictive about the TV I could watch. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch G.I. Joe. They let me watch Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters because they thought I was smart enough to understand that that's probably not reality. <laughs> but a show where American soldiers kill terrorist bad guys from the, that live in the desert, they thought was maybe a little too close to home. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So you had X-Men the Animated Series. You had Batman the Animated Series. Which, which was, was wonderful. Awesome. And, uh, and I'm not a DC guy or a Batman guy, but goddamn, I love that show. But yeah, I got super into comics for a few years. And then, yeah, and then you're in high school, and that stuff sort of goes by the wayside. And, you know, I transitioned from Empire Strikes Back to Braveheart pretty smoothly as, <laughs> as my go-to weekend movie when I had nothing else to do. And then, in 1999, they released The Phantom Menace. We knew it was coming for a couple of years, and they had re-released in theaters the original trilogy, which was just, I mean... You know, definitely fuck you to Lucas for changing shit, but let's be honest. The fact that he was able to pull that off wide releases of the original movies in the late 90s was awesome. It was cool. It was a cash grab. It was nothing other than that. But I know, but I just never thought I would have the opportunity to see those movies on the big screen. I was yeah. happy to pay the money for that. And, uh, you know, you could sort of tell with Phantom Menace, and you can jump in here, you sort of could tell, even in the early 90s, we didn't know much about CGI, seeing the trailer, it looked a little, what I, I'll call shiny or flat, yeah. the, C, the CGI. It, I mean, I think it was me recognizing the lack of practical effects without being able to vocalize it, because I'm a huge film nerd now, but back then, I didn't know what all that stuff meant. I don't know if you remember kind of how that went down when the series was being re-released. Or not, not re-released, when the new when the new series was You mean the new Star Wars movies? Mm-hmm, yeah, like, yeah. Well, like lead up to Phantom Menace. I, I don't remember picking up the shininess thing in the trailers, and I remember I saw The Phantom Menace twice, and I remember being excited because they have the trailer, and, you know, it's the same a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and it's got the blue text on the black starry background, just like the old movies. And then it showed a bunch of other images of Anakin as a kid and whatever, and I don't remember having any real visceral reaction to that either way. I saw it in theaters. I thought it was okay. I thought it was worth a second go. I probably saw it a second time, again, thought, all right, it was okay. It wasn't the magic that I felt the first time I watched the original Star Wars movie. I remember that, sitting, my dad and I sitting down to watch it together, and I was just enraptured by what by Luke and Han and the Falcon and the lightsabers and all. I loved every second of it. And then Attack of the Clones came, and by then I was a little older. I was a little bit smarter and a little bit more critical of film. And by that point, I kind of realized, all right, this is bad. The Phantom Menace was also bad. And by the time the third movie came out, which came out just as I was graduating Wesleyan, and so my parents and my grandparents who came to the ceremony wanted to go see it during that week, you know, you get before you graduate. And I went along with it, but I knew it wasn't going to be good. I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it. And what do you know? I was right. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. As you pointed out earlier, you know, Revenge of the Sith gets a couple points just for being not as bad as the rest of the of the prequel movies, right? Uh, but, sure, but that doesn't mean I would ever want to watch it again. No. And so, you know, and this will bring it to, to where we want to go, which is, you know, again, I kind of asked you this this question before. If you want to take another shot at it, which is why the obsession with Star Wars and not Star Trek, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, let's put it this way. From the mid-60s until now, we've had a regular, a choppy but regular, you know, huge number of Star Trek episodes in like five different series, 12 Mm -hmm. movies going on 13 you know, I mean, people love this. As you point out, it's easier to consume. But again, there's a lot of Star Wars people out there who have been spending tons of money the last 20, 30 years on toys and comic books and books. Whether they're in continuity or not, who cares? They're still investing the time and the money. In fact, people spend way more money on Star Wars and Star Trek because of the toys and the costumes and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, without a doubt. So, I mean, the original trilogy was a cash grab before Lucas... Well, Lucas had a sense of it because Lucas said, you don't have to pay me a salary, but I'm going to own all the rights to this stuff. So Lucas had a sense of the merchandising. But that was before we had notions of kind of materialism or as I call it, hyper-materialism, out-of-control materialism. Lucas had a sense for it. He was the first. I don't know where he got it. Maybe the same part of the brain where he developed the story of, of Star Wars where he did let's say borrow to to be nice if not steal from other science fiction properties and so is it just the lack of let's put it this way a lot of people describe star wars as at least as much fantasy as science fiction if not more so would you agree with that oh totally i've had that debate many times about whether it's fantasy or science fiction and i I don't know i call it science fiction because it has spaceships and laser swords but it also has mystical magic religion stuff that not you don't really see in sci-fi so even though they kind of ruined that and made it a biological thing so (laughs) i know the midichlorians insult to injury it doesn't matter though i mean the great thing is jj abrams is going to you know, not not only is he going to, but he is totally within his right to ignore the prequels mm-hmm. because this is more about being sequels to the original trilogy. I, you know, right. I mean, he'll have little nods here or there, but yeah, we won't hear about midichlorians. What I read is that uh, when Lucas sold the rights, he told the people who bought it, you know, I have some ideas about what the sequels should be if you're interested, and they just said, no, nope, not interested at all. Sorry. Wow, interesting. Interesting, interesting. So yeah, I mean, as a fantasy guy myself, uh, I, you know, I, I I really related. I mean, yeah, you've got right, you've got spaceships and droids, but you you know also have you know laser swords and magic, right? And yet it all the what I refer to within these sorts of movies, the logistics all made sense somehow. Oh, totally. Um, Whereas Star Trek, they spend so much time trying to make the logistics make sense that it sometimes just unravels because sure. they're trying too hard. Um, the way Lucas tried too hard as a filmmaker, I mean, that's the thing. You know, A lot of people be like, oh, the prequels suck because Lucas just didn't give it his all. I would argue the opposite. I think he had too many ideas and wanted to do too much, and it all just became 
he he tried to control things so much that it became chaotic when you really need to do the opposite which is you know i, I refer to the original trilogy as a you know beautiful chaos you know mm-hmm. you just need to let that chaos come out that's what i really appreciated about jj's uh, reboot of star trek especially the first one in 09 and i think he's really going to bring back to the star wars uh universe well what i'd say is also the original movies were collaborations even as much as they were the brainchild of lucas i think it was Kasdan, I think, who directed a lot of Empire Strikes Back. Well, Kasdan wrote it. Did he also direct it? Maybe that's not the guy. There was a second director. They shot Empire Strikes Back in two different locations simultaneously. Right. And the stuff that the other guy did, those are the scenes that people tend to think of as the most memorable, best scenes in The Empire Strikes Back, which most people think is probably the best Star Wars movie. I still love the first one a little bit more just because... It, even in the title, it's literally hopeful. The second one is much darker, but the second one is a, a brilliantly made film. Yeah. Um, and so what I think Lucas did to, was he was too unilateral in the prequel movies, and he didn't bother to bounce any ideas off anybody else. He just wrote the script, said, here, go do this. Right. And ultimately, what he had to contribute wasn't enough to make the movies great the way the old ones were. Um in terms of why they appeal more than Star Trek, just just really quick, just really quick to jump in. Sorry, um, Kasdan co-wrote it with someone named Lee Brackett, and Kasdan is did co-write the new one with J.J. Abrams. My guess is they're giving J.J. a writing credit, but it was mostly Kasdan. And I looked up Kasdan. I'm like, oh, this guy must be like 85. Nope, he's 66, which means he was 28 when he wrote Empire yeah, Strikes Back. That's the thing people is they when they think of George <laughs> Lucas they think of the old man that he kind of is now. Right. He was so young when yeah. he made Star he's Wars. He's a stud. He's a great looking young guy. Yeah, he had a big fro and Yeah. In terms of why they work when Star Trek sometimes doesn't. Mm-hmm. One the films especially the originals they're better made films I think on a on a cinematic technical level than most maybe all of the Star Trek movies. They take in concepts. I, I don't know in philosophy if you ever read Joseph Campbell. Oh yeah, yeah. I criticize Campbell, or I criticize I criticize Lucas and Spielberg for falling back on Campbell. Sure, but and for people who don't know, Joseph Campbell wrote a book, a very famous book called I think it's called The Hero's Journey, that looks at myths and stories from all kinds of different cultures throughout time and the and the world, and analyzes them for constant, consistent themes of who the hero is, what kind of journey he goes on, uh, and he kind of narrows it down to about a dozen or so attributes. And Star Wars hits these attributes very, very directly. The kid doesn't, Luke doesn't have parents, or they died or something. It's not clear until the prequels. He has an older mentor who dies but imparts wisdom onto him. He finishes journey in a changed place. He has a magical item of some sort. And so... Star Wars works because it's a story that takes elements that have worked for millennia, basically. Right. I also think Star Wars has always marketed itself much, much, much better and more effectively than Star Trek has. Uh, I don't know why that is. Uh, Maybe it's the parent companies that have owned the two projects throughout history. But Star Wars keeps itself in the popular lexicon, I guess you'd call it, in a way Star Trek just has never wanted to or never successfully done. 
I mean, I think part of the problem with Star Wars, uh, uh, as it pertains to the United States, is that it's a socialist vision. I mean, it's a radically socialist vision, right? Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Sorry if I missed Yeah, Star Trek is... A... Yeah, Star Wars is fascist. Right, so, right. Star, Star Wars is the normal American themes of our notions of liberty and our notions of fascism. Right. Right. But even, even the good guys are kind of fascist. They're the Jedi Order. They run around doing whatever the hell they want because they're superheroes who can do whatever they want. As portrayed by the prequels, that's very much the case. In fact, one of the few things I actually thought worked in the prequels was making the Jedis a bunch of arrogant assholes. I did not see that coming. Um, I liked how they did it. Even Yoda, you know, got sucked into the complacence. I don't know. I, the Jedi Council is supposed to be... This Arthurian, you know, knights of the, mm -hmm. the future sort of, and they're just, they, the decisions they make are so stupid and so telegraphed just because yeah. the movie is so badly written. Right. Well, and this is something JJ is going to correct uh, yeah. in a number of ways. A, it appears that there are few, if any, Jedis 30 years after Return of the Jedi. Right. So, you know, we're not going to get a Jedi Council. I mean, we've seen John Boyega with a lightsaber. We're not even sure he's a Jedi, whatever. Right. There's one Sith guy. There's right. Luke is in it, but he hasn't been in the trailers. And people actually think he might be turning to the dark side. Which Yeah, I've heard that. I don't think that's happening. I hope it doesn't because I... No, it's not. J -J 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 -J, JJ answered it without answering it in an interview I heard. I, I um, hope so. I mean, I'm like yeah. maybe the only guy who's like this. No. I Luke was my favorite character. I liked yep. Luke more than Han. Because uh, yep. if I had a choice between telekinesis and a laser sword right. and a spaceship, right. I'd want telekinesis and a laser sword. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now my favorite's Princess Leia. In fact... She's pretty badass. <laughs> let's be honest. No female badass character, in my opinion, has been better than Princess Leia since Princess Leia. I mean, she set the standard, but she set the bar so high. And the thing is, man... Well, I was... No, Ripley's pretty cool. Who? Ellen Ripley from Alien. Oh, yeah. See, I love Sigourney Weaver. I, I, I'm not comparing it to that. I, I'm talking about, like, really... I mean... You know, Alien is sci-fi, but it, it's it, it's just a much different vibe. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I mean, they're both right up there. The difference is, though, what makes Leia badass isn't just her fighting skills. She's running the fucking rebellion. Yeah. She's the military leader. She's the political leader. She's the spiritual leader. You know, she's trying to keep the whole thing together, and that's what's great. Uh, you know, an empire... Which is, you know, Han, although he's a dumbass in some ways, he's being more honest with her than she is with him. Yeah. So I'm totally. sitting there doing the commentary. You know, he's, you know, putting on the hard sell. And I'm like, she doesn't have time for this shit, you know? She's trying to run a fucking rebellion, not deal with this scruffy-looking nerf herder, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, and that's why I love her the best, you know? Yes, Black Widow's an assassin. Yes, Gamora's an assassin. Yes, Ripley is a badass. But Leia is really the most talented in almost everything and in fact if you add force powers to her she's really you know could be the most powerful person in the galaxy whatever we won't get there point being when i was re-watching the movies to do commentary which i may or may not release original star wars movies she is so far beyond uh harrison ford and mark hamill in the first star wars movie i mean oh, totally her acting ability from minute one in the series is, is really much better than the other two i i, I say the first movie's leia's movie because she's the only one who can act 
the second movie's Han's movie along with her because she sort of brings Han up. You know, they bring each other up, I think. Uh, Harrison Ford, that is. And then the third movie's Luke's movie. Sure. And that's why growing up, the movie I ended up watching the most, even though I, I will acknowledge the majority opinion that Empire is the best in a lot of ways, I ended up watching Return of the Jedi the most because I loved Luke. I'm totally with you. I was more of a Luke guy. That was where he really got to come together and, you know, it was the best filming, it was the best action, the plot made the most sense, if you can say that. But more so, it, you know, they're not together in Empire, right? You want right. the team fighting together, you know? So you spend the first part of Return of the Jedi getting the team back together, and then they're together for most of the rest of the movie. This is what I'm, and this is my thing about Ultron. Uh, you know, a general philosophy, which is why I love the originals in The Matrix, too. Well, I love the originals. I do love that second movie, even if it's inferior, because they have already done the hero story and can just jump in and sure. have adventures together, right? And, and I like that, too. It's it's just that in most cases, the second movie is just simply, in my opinion, not executed as well. And in numerous cases, including Ultron, because Whedon admitted this, once you do a second film, other people start putting their hands into the filmmaking process. And he said, I had all these guidelines I had to follow when I was making Ultron, all these things I had to do or couldn't do yeah. that I were not in place when I did Avengers because nobody had made Avengers and nobody knew what was going to work and what wasn't. And it yeah. was a very frustrating filmmaking experience. We didn't said that. Yep. You know, I, I thought Reloaded, I don't know, and... The Wachowskis are very hit and miss. They've always been very hit or miss. So Totally, totally. But uh, but my point is, I just liked that I could sit down and Reloaded. Um, and actually, did it, I liked Reloaded more when I started getting into it philosophically. But I like that you're in it, and already Nia's kicking ass, and the team's working together, and they're getting the war on. You know, like, it's fun to see the origin story, but you can... It's like the first Iron Man. Is the first Iron Man the best of the Iron Mans? Probably... But, you know, I can only watch the the origins. St- I mean, it's like Batman Begins, modified to be Iron Man. Yeah. Um, now, you're a DC guy. Sure. Um, so, I assume, I mean, you've seen the Marvel stuff as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of a big picture, we're talking about how insane the film industry is in terms of these dates. Right. Right. Star Trek has moved up to 2016, but they already have another one on the books for 2019 if it does well. You've got the Avatar movies. It's guaranteed to do uh, well. Wait, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Star Trek. I don't know if it's going to do well or not. I think it'll do well enough. I mean, it's only going to make a couple hundred million to make its budget back, and I'm sure it'll make that. Well, and this is something I want to get back to, which is that the big American studios have perfected international distribution. Yes. So if they can make their money back domestically, then everything else is gravy overseas, which is why I think Star Trek three will make a lot of money just from that fact alone. I think so too. Um, and then, you know, as you pointed out, Marvel has at least a dozen dates going to 2020 or 2021. Okay. And don't take this as an insult, man. But the fact that DC has 20, da- 12 dates as well booked, before Batman v Superman ever hits the planet with Zack Miller. Zack Snyder, you mean? Zack Snyder. So, you know, I'm not a hater on DC. I just didn't grow up loving Batman or Superman or these other characters. I mean, what are your expectations for Batman v Superman? But as sort of a bigger question, is it smart for DC to seemingly arrogantly say, oh yeah, we're going to be making all these movies like Marvel are without really having launched this universe? I guess Man of Steel launched it. Well, sure. Uh, all right. So first of all, 
there's no correlation that's ever been proven between the movies and the comic sales. I've talked to new, I mean, I still read comics weekly and I go, you know, and I talk to comic guys who work at their stores. They've never suggested that you can actually sell more comics by making these movies. So if DC is just making them to try to boost up their print product, they're going to fail. I don't think that's why they're doing it. No, nope. they can't let these rights lapse and have somebody else make them. It's ambitious. They know they got to do it. They don't want to be seen as the second best, you know, superhero product in the world. They're winning on TV by a pretty large margin. Arrow is terrific. Flash is terrific. Supergirl got a huge ratings bump in its first week. So wait, it seems- wait, wait. hold on. You're telling me Flash and, and Arrow are, are beating the Marvel shows that are on ABC? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh. Critically, I don't know. And ratings wise. Huh. Agents of Shield is is very inconsistent. Oh yeah, I, I I stopped watching at the end of season two. Here, I, this is just oh, and this is what I'm sort of getting at with you. I, I, I'm sick of the oversaturation. Thing is, I'd have more respect for DC if they didn't try and do the Marvel model. Now the TV shows I'm cool with, but in terms of the movies, if you're DC, just do one a year and make it awesome. You know, sure. It's like it's like with the X-Men movies. The first couple were amazing. And this is what I want to get back to as well. The first couple X-Men movies were amazing. Then they had some pretty bad ones. Yep. And now they're building it back up. I loved Days of Future Past last year when they got Brian Singer back. Yep. And First Class, I really enjoyed. Maybe I just like watching Nazis die. I already recorded all my X-Men commentaries, which I'm going to release in the spring leading up to Apocalypse, which I think is going to be amazing. I hope um, it is. It could, uh, it could fizzle out, but I hope it is. Uh, I don't think so. I think it could challenge Cap and, uh, and Batman v Superman. We'll see. We shall see. But anyways... I had, for some reason, I had remembered not liking First Class and was sort of bashing it a little bit in the commentaries. And then I watched it into the commentary. I was like, damn, like 95% of this is really freaking good. It was, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing, though, is I'd come to love the new cast. I mean, yeah. James McAvoy is probably my favorite actor that doesn't get enough work. And I don't know why. He stole Days of Future Past. I mean, oh, totally. That That's Oscar worthy. And I don't say that in, in terms of of comic books very often but if you take out the fact i mean you see those scenes where you know his 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 telepathy is taking him over that's so hard to make look good and not cheesy sure and and you're like you know i'm like tearing up during this that stuff like he is you know so him and fassbender and lawrence fassbender is a wonderful actor i would actually argue that uh evan peters who plays quicksilver quicksilver stole days of future past he was the most lifelike his scenes were the most fun from a fun standpoint yeah i'm I, and this is not directed against you. I am sick of hearing that from nerd people, though, that somehow he stole the movie. Was his extended sequence awesome? Yeah, it's great. But you know what? When I keep watching the movie over and over again, it's the drama of the main three or four characters that I come back to. And that's just me. That's I love the superhero stuff, but it's like it's like with the Avengers. When, I, when I'm rewatching the first Avengers, yeah, the, the New York battle's okay, but it's all the stuff that happens on the helicarrier with the characters, comedy and drama. That's what I care about. I love the battle in New York. I think it's awesome. It's great. It's great. But, 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 really quick, Evan Peters is definitely a major character in Apocalypse and will be revealed that he is Magneto's son. So we will be seeing plenty of him. I'm excited about that. In Days of Future Past, the scene that I love the most, it's or it's really just a couple of lines, is when Magneto finds out that Xavier has been taking this drug to walk, he gets this disgusted, you know, you're hiding who you are looking. He says, you took drugs so that, you know, you suppress your power so that you can walk. And McAvoy goes, no, my friend, I take these drugs so that I can sleep. And it's in that moment that 
and I never thought about this all that much, how taxing his powers must actually be on him. They get into that a little in the comics from time to time. Onslaught, which was a, a plot in the late 90s, I think, is basically all of his negative thoughts manifesting as a basically a universe-eating monster. But in the movies, they never deal with that, how hard it must be to be a telepath of that much power. And that line and the way McAvoy delivers it is so sad and so tragic, and it's brilliantly delivered. And, and, and I'm so glad you said that for a number of reasons. Part of the reason I said, while well, I love Quicksilver, I get over it so quickly, because the very next scene is that scene on the plane that you're describing. Yeah, and they just leave him behind. I mean, the movie doesn't really... Yeah, you know what? I don't care about that inconsistency, especially because I actually have a theory about why they wouldn't bring him. I was like, oh, he's so powerful. Why wouldn't you bring him? It's one thing to give him a specific task, like break into the Pentagon. Right. But what, what was going to go on in D.C., in Paris and D.C., was very subtle sure. um, and complicated. And he is still a kid. And so, you know, and and they they didn't want – they needed him for the Pentagon. But after that, they felt like if we don't have to risk this kid's life, we're not going to do it, you know. But th- there's also that great shot at the end where Magneto's giving the big villain speech in front of right. the White House. And they flip for two seconds to Evan Peters with his little sister sitting on his lap and a look mm-hmm. on his face that just says, oh, my God, I can't believe I broke this guy out. I'm responsible <laughs> for this. And I think we're going to see more dramatic performance from Evan Peters in a good way along with the comedy in the next movie. But, yeah, the plane scene, you know, if, let's put it this way. Captain America Winter Soldier is a flawless movie. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy is a lot of fun and very rewatchable. But from a depth standpoint, the, the best parts of X-Men Days of Future Past are at the top, even more so than the Hydra Shield stuff in Cap because of the – this is what I say about X-Men and why it, from a comic standpoint, I like it better than the Avengers universe or sub-universe, which is that X-Men's all political and social commentary. Oh, yeah. And it, it can be heavy-handed, but as I said, I like heavy-handed when it's done well. And so, you know, the fact that, you know, the Avengers are stealing the, the Registration Act, you know? It's yes. like, oh, now we have a superhero Registration Act. And, and, and what makes the X-Men better is that you have a reason why people have superpowers and a way to discriminate against them. Sure. It's not just a bunch of random freaks who have been tested on or whatever in the Avengers. Meaning, I, I, you know, my favorite comic book movies... Uh, this might be an actually interesting con- question in a sec. That the reason you know the best Avengers universe movies are are high up is because of execution and acting and everything. But for me, X Men is just a much deeper property. And whenever Brian Singer makes an X Men movie, it's damn good. It and is. So you know, to jump back in 1999, Phantom Menace, huge disappointment. 2000, out of nowhere, the X Men movie which not only rebooted or booted the X-Men franchise, but created the modern superhero genre. Yeah, it and uh, the first Spider-Man, which I think came out a year later or maybe just six months later, but those two movies came out real close to each other. Yeah. And I remember seeing both of those and thinking, we are finally past the dog shit late 90s Batman movies and the Blade movies, which the first Blade is okay. Some people like the second one. It's not a great franchise. They're not. I don't think they're great movies. Uh, so the, the mid-90s were awful for superhero stuff. And then we had Spider-Man 1 and X-Men 1, and it was like a breath of fresh air that suddenly way more effort was being put into these properties, and they were going to be done justice, and they were going to be fun, and 
deep and well acted and and they finally this subgenre had arrived yeah i mean i would say from a tone standpoint what we've come to know as the avengers universe is a sort of a triangulation with X-Men and Spider-Man. <laughs> it's not as goofy as Spider-Man, but it has that sense of fun. It's not as dark and dour and serious as X-Men, but it tries to have, you know, major or some political and social themes when it can. You know, I think and uh, yeah, I'm about to ask you about your favorite comic book movies. I think that uh that X2 in 2003 is in my top 5. Oh, uh, totally. Uh it, it and what's great is the special effects in X2 look better than almost anything out there today, at least up until the last couple of years. I mean, X2 makes th- both Thor movies, in my opinion, look really amateurish from a CGI standpoint, especially the thir- first Thor, which I do like. But, I-, I mean, Marvel has struggled to be realistic. Mm-hmm. And J.J. Abrams, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams with Star Trek, Joss Whedon with Serenity, and Brian Singer with all of the X-Men movies. I, I mean, it, it, I don't understand with all the money that Marvel Studios is putting into this stuff, you know, why you know, why they can't get there. I mean, Ultron's getting closer, I guess. I think Civil War will look the best just because it's the latest. And so, yeah, so to, to lead us into a more specific question, although you can address, address that query as well, what are your favorite superhero movies to date and sort of, um, you know, what, what chances do you give DC to make happen what they want to make happen? All right, uh... My answer to DC is going to be long and violent, so I'll get to that last. <laughs> okay. X2 is easily is one of my favorites. There is no comic book movie that I've walked out of with such a feeling of, yeah, awesome, as X2 when they hint, when they're flying over the, the, oh, yeah. the lake, and you see the hints of this bird, and you think, oh, my God, they're going to do Phoenix. That's going to be so cool. And then they totally butchered it in the third movie and made it awful, and it, it was so disappointing. You, you know what's great, though, about that? I can't even watch the third movie, not because it's bad, because it's not in the spirit of X-Men. That's why I can't – I don't. you know, it's like I, I can watch bad superhero movies if they're in the spirit. X-Men, Last Stand, is in the spirit. But that one little scene, that one image of Jean telling Wolverine to kill her and him killing her while crying and saying, I love you – is so brilliant, and they've reused it in every movie, which is great. I mean, if nothing else, Last Stand gave us that one image, which has been so important for Wolverine. Sure, but that's not nearly enough to sell that film for me. I, no, no. My favorite X-Man was Cyclops, and I know that's lame, because uh, he's not necessarily <laughs> the most interesting surface character. Boy Scout. And, yeah, and I admit some of it was just because I thought the idea of a visor that could shoot lasers powerful enough to blast through a mountain was pretty cool. Totally. But in the comics and the TV show, they got that Cyclops isn't the most psychologically deep character on the surface, even though when you get older, you kind of realize he's leading these people on these suicidal, insane missions. It's going to take a toll on him and force him to kind of be hardened. But he is part of the team. He is an X-Man as much as Gene or Wolverine, which is every teenage boy's superhero because he's full of rage and anger, and we think that's important when we're 16. Um, Wolverine is a metaphor for teenage male, you know, pent-up rage, sexual frustration, whatever. Yeah, he's Uh, more complicated in the more recent comics, but as I say in my X-Men commentaries whenever I release them, 
you know, Hugh Jackman within 20 minutes of the first movie because of his relationship with Anna Paquin is more humanized than in 50 years of X-Men comics totally. or whatever. But that was, they had to do it. It's for movies, you know, and it's Hugh Jackman and, and the kids all love him. It's great. I love babysitter, lovable, huggable Logan who still sure. will, will skewer the shit out of anyone that tries to mess with the, uh, mess. I mean, he seriously almost stops an entire army by himself in, yeah. in X2. Oh, and that's a wonderful scene. But the movie's pretty much shit on Cyclops' character. They basically just make him the guy that cock-blocks Wolverine yeah. from getting with yeah. Gene. And that pisses me off because he's wor- his character is much more valuable and important than that. Uh, it's one of the things I loved. The last scene in Days of Future Past was wonderful just to see that they kind of recognized killing him off was a terrible thing to do. And so they bring him back. I like that. Um, and I like that I didn't see that coming. They didn't. They actually kept that a secret. So X2 was one of my favorites. The first Avengers was definitely one of my favorites. Wait, if I just jump in about Cyclops really quickly. Um, yep, he just seems like a douchey uh, frat boy in the right. show. But he, they do humanize him in subtle ways. I, I talk about how Wolverine grudgingly comes to respect him at least, yeah. if not like him, and how you know how true is it that not only do you have a, an acquaintance who has a girl that you have a crush on, but you can simultaneously like the guy and still want to be with the girl. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. It, it, it's way more subtle that way. And by the end of X2, they're freaking crying on each other's shoulders about Gene, which is a great performance by them. So, yeah, it, I, I, I like that actor a lot. He's actually very funny. I've mm-hmm. seen him in a couple of indie movies. He's James quite Marsden. hilarious. James Marsden. He's yeah. really funny on 30 Rock, which I don't know if you watched or not. But, no, uh, I think I might have seen one of them with him just because I knew he was on it. So he um, dates and, and marries Tina. Oh, spoiler! He dates and marries Tina Fey in the last season. Uh, he's a very, very funny character, well written, and he plays off her very, very well. So X two was terrific. Oh, 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 oh! No, my other thought about Cyclops. Sorry, was just that um, he's way more complex in the comics. Oh, totally. And, and not only is he the leader, there are times when Professor X. I mean where he has to take control even more than Professor X in the comics because Professor X, like in the movies, the problem is you have to take Professor X out, you know, and partially or completely in every movie because otherwise he could control every person on the planet, you know? Pretty much. So, you know, but in the comic books, you know, they have more room to deal with it, but Cyclops is way more complex when you add the Phoenix and you got his son Cable, Mm -hmm. Nathan coming back from the future. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I I was fine with the the, the 2D portrayal on screen because if you read the comic books, you know there's there's way more going on there and he's the only thing holding it together at a lot of times. So, you love X2, you love the first Avengers. Yeah, Winter Soldier was... Really, really good. Guardians of the Galaxy. If you like space opera movies, the number of beats Guardians of the Galaxy hits, and right as it hits it, then mocks it, it's really uncanny how every time a cliched kind of space opera science fiction movie would have a certain scene, when Guardians gets to that scene, they poke a hole in it, they make a joke. It's really amazing how many times they manage to pull that off. You know, he rescues her and he makes a joke about how, man, I must be like really ironic. You know, the, every time they're planning a, the prison breakout scene and they're planning it for, you know, it's a 10 minute conversation. And then Groot just rips off the cable, you know, and they send 
Quill to steal the guy's leg, which is really, really funny. All right. All right. Quill does nothing in that fight. I wanted to add earlier that... You need my what? By far, if you if there's three acts, there's really way more than three. If you just put the movie in three acts, the middle act in the prison is my favorite by far because of the character stuff and the practical effects. My problem with Guardians is I just don't think the ship designs are that great in the final battle. No. And the final battle doesn't quite work with the, the forming the Tholian web to get back to Star Trek. I mean, the, the ships are way too colorful. You know, the, the detail on those gray X-Wings from 1977, mm-hmm. you just you can't make up for that with CGI color. And in fact, from an aesthetic standpoint, by far my favorite part of this final space battle is Ronin's ship. And again, it's gray, it's twisting, yep. it's got all sorts of textures. I don't know why you need to have the Mets colors on the freaking <laughs> Ravager ships, you know? It looks like they just came from City Field or something like that. Totally. Like, you know? And considering these are sort of supposed to be covert, you know, thieves, why you would have a brightly colored ship doesn't make a lot of sense. You would kind of want something nondescript, yep. you know, so that when they call the cops on you, well, what color is it? I don't know, grayish? Yeah. And, and you know, and then going back and watching Serenity, the final space battle where they're just trying not to die, right? And, and the and the the best, I think, the best crash landing sequence of all time is in that movie in terms of film angles and sound design and character stuff and and just the way they shot it. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Joss is is restrained in the Avengers with moving camera around all over the place because of. It's the Avengers. It's a big Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. But in Serenity, he shows he could go J.J. Abrams fully. You oh. know? And for me, that's just a much more appealing space battle than Guardians. I mean, I still get, I'm not going to say chills, but I still get pumped every time I get to the Serenity battle. Totally. And part of it's that it's so short, and so it's short and sweet. But Guardians, it's like you shoot the side, then you shoot up on the pilot, then you look at the green screen out the window, then you're on the other side, then you're on the back. I mean, them diving underneath the fireballs at the beginning was the coolest part of it. And then it just got really static but that's not what the movie was about as you point out it's about you know just just taking a space opera and and uh you know and flipping it on its head or whatever i think is what you're getting to totally uh, with uh with serenity also the sheer variety of ships and ways of combat that they introduce in that final battle because the reavers are all insane and they all customize their ships differently makes it a very interesting fight. You have some guys with lasers and EMP. Other guys have, like, bolas or grappling hooks that they just shoot into the other ship and spin them until they explode. So you have the uniformity of the Alliance ships, even though they're fairly varied in their shapes and sizes. And then you have just the utter montage, uh, collage of different Reaver ships that are all going to fight you a slightly different way. It makes each moment in that fairly short fight different looking and visually interesting you know you can only see two ships shooting lasers at each other for so long before it gets boring yep and uh you know another point i'll give to threading over guardians you know and this is a lot of joss but also the actor is that she would tell edgy for is one of the great villains ever just because he's such a good actor i mean he's a terrific actor He's so charismatic, you know, he's so psychotic but appealing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then they somehow sell that he turns at the end. And because of the writing, but especially his acting, I totally buy it. I totally buy it. 
you know, when he finally sees the video of the Reavers and realizes what's going on, that he would turn, mm-hmm. you know, in that universe with that performance. And, and, you know, that's not Lee Pace's fault with Ronan. Ronan was supposed to be an out-and-out genocidal bad guy. You know, the operative had I- ideals, at least. He had yeah. an I- ideology, as twisted as it was. And, you know, Joss Whedon's ideology is very pro kind of chaos or, or, or creativity and lack of control. I mean, that's what Serenity is all about. Mm-hmm. And why, why we love that show is that it's not just that they're pirates and not, it's not just that it feels like Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon, which it does. Um, but it's that, you know, they are the antithesis to these twisted visions of utopia, which is interesting. And maybe we can finally tie this back to Star Trek. Star Trek has a very uplifting vision of utopia, but it's possibly that it's it's darker under the surface than than we know about, right? Or, or could be portrayed as such. I don't know if it's darker, but it certainly focuses on the people in charge, the people tasked with keeping the peace. And in the, I have Firefly on DVD, and Whedon, you know, in one of his little featurettes talking about this show, he talks about how he didn't want to make a show that was Star Trek. He wanted the people to be the poor people living in the Star Trek universe, you know, who have no real use for a galactic or I guess they live in a solar system. It's not clear how big fireflies. Yeah, it's like it's a handful of solar systems, I believe. Or, or something like that. So with Firefly, so however big Firefly is, the Alliance is Starfleet. They're much more corrupt, obviously, you know, and I don't think Starfleet ever tried to do anything as bad as pacify a population and instead create a race of psychotic, murdering rapists. But the entire concept of Firefly is these are the people that this Starfleet would kind of ignore, would not bother to help, would not find interesting, even if they weren't, you know, a legacy of a rebellion. You know, these are the the poor people in Star in the United Federation. Right. Um, Star Trek, it is a very positive world, but it, image of the future. But it is a future in which everything is unified, and there is a galactic government, for lack of, or I guess it's two quadrants basically. But half the galaxy is run by one order. The people, for the most part, are good who are running it, and I do kind of like that notion that there are, we could elect leaders that actually are selfless and intelligent and serve us in a way that keeps the peace without repressing the individual's right to do whatever the heck he wants. But it is a vision of the future in which there is a central power and everybody does have to recognize that central power is the central power. Yeah. I mean, you can't go against it in a radical way. I mean, it's not undemocratic. It's not undemocratic, uh, but it is certainly, if you read Christian, not Christian, conservative fiction, one of the central themes people are afraid of is a, a, a world government, that the instead of the United Nations being what it currently is, which is that they don't really do a whole lot and what they do, America just ignores, that the United Nations is actually a central fascist power that can impose its will on the whole world. In religion, one of the, one of the classes I took was on eschatology and the end of the world. We read the Tim LaHaye Left Behind books, or at least the first one. And that starts with the devil becoming the secretary general of the United Nations, basically. So this notion of a of the federation of a unified central government, for those who think that that's inherently problematic, that that inherently infringes on the individual's rights, that does not make the Star Trek universe certainly very attractive. I could also say that it's a vision of a, a diversified world where everybody you know, where there's no capitalism. Nobody ever has money or gets paid. They talk about that constantly. 
all of the poor, all the poor and poverty is wiped out by government referenda. Basically, there's lots of things I'm sure a certain type of conservative would hate about Star Trek, but the idea of a centralized federation government is certainly one of them. I think even a, even like a, a radical liberal could criticize could Star be. Trek. I mean, it, it's such a Big Brother scenario, but. You know, for example, in the um, in the Star Trek reboot in 09, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things I like about the reboot is it does show a little bit of the darker side of Starfleet. Right. Uh, um, or at least people like Kirk, like, you know, Kirk before he gets recruited Kirk, who are sort of just poor and bored and living in Iowa and, what, you know, not like... No one's in poverty, but not everyone is necessarily thrilled about that, that view of the future or whatever. Right. But, but anyways... You know, when uh, when Christopher Pike tries to recruit Kirk after he gets his ass kicked in the bar, which is great. You can whistle really loud. What's that? That's one. Of, that's what Kirk says right before he passes out. Oh, oh yeah, you whistle really loud. <laughs> I love Christopher. He Pike. gets the shit beaten out of him in that movie. The number of people oh, who yeah. get the crap out of Kirk yep. is really funny. He takes down almost nobody right. on the on the on the on the drill. Sulu takes down both of the guys. Uh, you know, but anyway, so, um, Christopher Pike mentions that Starfleet's getting complacent and a little <laughs> arrogant, and, and that's part of his appeal to Kirk, and that's part of why the second movie's so disappointing. They shouldn't have had Pike go against Kirk. They should have had him be on Kirk's side yeah. in that case with the stupid prime directive thing, which maybe we'll get to. Um, and so, you know, and so the, and, and so the Star Trek movie problematized a little bit, but anyways, so you remember the transwarp beaming with Scotty? Yeah, where? it's another thing that doesn't make any sense. They, uh, in the comics, I'm pretty sure they can't, uh, not the comics, in the shows, I'm pretty sure they can't beam that far. Well, no, that's the point, is that in the main timeline, right, Scotty comes up with it in, you know, Starfleet Academy, and it gets filed away because he can't complete it. In the movie, it's future Spock who's beyond even. What, what's the farthest future of the series, Voyager, in terms of timeline? Well, anyways, so so the Spock, the Leonard Nimoy Spock that comes back into the past and in the, in the reboot in '09, is from many decades beyond whatever the furthest future we've seen on television. That's actually not true. Um, they put out a comic. Really? Yeah, they put out a comic prequel right before that came out, and Picard escorts. Spock to the Romulans to try to and get their help to get the ship, the the whatever that octopus jellyfish ship is, you know, the thing, the fast ship that he shoots. The yeah, room. I love it, and that's that's part of why I thought it was further. Never see anything like that in Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. I uh, mean, neither. Uh, but in the in this particular comic series, Picard escorts him to Romulus to set all this in motion, and it actually takes place right after uh, Nemesis. Because Data is back, and there's like one throwaway line that wipes out all of Nemesis, which I loved, where Data says, yeah, luckily my original programming reasserted itself a few hours after my original body died or something. So basically, Data is still alive. Oh, dude, you just killed it for me, man. I wanted it to be Far Future Spock, because the red matter now really makes no sense. Yep. Makes zero sense that they could that they could swallow an entire solar system with that red matter. Oh God! Yeah, I was like hoping that he was in the jellyfish ship that he was going like warp twenty or something. Nope. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm no offense. I'm ignoring that particular comic book <laughs> because it it seems cooler to be from the far future. Anyways. So they transwarp beam onto the Enterprise. You know, Scotty gets stuck in the water too. We get a little bit of the adventure stuff, which I love. You know, and that's what made 
the, the you know JJ Star Trek movies, uh, Star Warsy in a good way is that that what I call adventure as opposed to action, right? Oh. It's the Indiana Jones stuff, you know, it's the Jurassic Park stuff, whatever. Uh, and so he gets Scotty out, and then they see him on the video camera. I'm doing the commentary. I'm like, I can't remember using internal video cameras on any Star Trek property ever. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> like, did they ever? Did you ever? Uh, were we ever on the bridge with Picard and be like, you know, show camera A three nine two one in engineering or something like that? Like, you never see it. And the point being, they avoid all this Big Brother stuff mm-hmm. by by not doing it. Like you would in, 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 with technology. You know that advanced. Even your bedroom would have like fifty cameras in it, right? Totally. And yet, if you watch a movie like Minority Report, which takes place in twenty fifty four, and everyone's on cameras and optical scans, mm-hmm. that's way lower tech and way nearer in the future, and so believable. I mean, you know, like <laughs> how does privacy even exist four hundred years from now in the Star Trek vision? It makes no sense, and that's why Star Wars gets away with stuff because. They can say, well, we have this technology and we have, don't have that one. Mm-hmm. In Star Trek, they would have cameras and microphones on everyone at all times, right. which makes the Big Brother thing even more scary, right? Totally. And that's where, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to say this, but you have to, have to buy the vision of Star Trek that, yes, all of this potentially surveillance technology exists, but our society has finally evolved to the point where we don't feel the need or we don't have the need to use it in that way. Right. Um, and if you believe that, that humanity is capable of that, then that is one more reason why the Star Trek universe is very attractive. If you don't believe it, uh, then that's one of the reasons it's off-putting. All right, so we've been talking about Star Wars and Star Trek and comic books, other properties, a uh, bunch of big ones we haven't hit up yet, including... Uh, Terminator and Blade Runner. You mentioned uh, Alien um, via Sigourney Weaver. Uh, we've talked about Firefly and Serenity. Have not talked about Battlestar. But as different as all these properties are, for the most part, they find different ways, even in today's manifestations, to get around both the internet and artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, in Star Trek, you know, the the data web of the universe and subspace communication or whatever they use is so vast you know it always seems to be going through official channels now that's partially because we're with the the flagship and they're on major diplomatic and political and military missions right but, but they never talk about the web or the internet or anything like that jj definitely doesn't get into it we do have an ai in the form of data it's an android. It seems right. unlikely that in the 24th century there'd be one emotionless android in the in the universe, and you couldn't create any more. We have robots uh, or droids in Star Wars, but they're very limited in their functions. And it's really a question of whether or not those droids are actually alive. They are right. program per- they're artificial personalities, but. Can they actually make independent decisions? It seems like R2 kind of can, but C-3PO, it's much, much harder for him to go against his natural programming. And they have no problem, like, wiping his memory when it suits them. Like, if he's an artificial intelligence, 
they treat him almost like a slave. It's kind of problematic in that respect. We see droids getting tortured, I think, in all of the six movies. Certainly the original three, there's droid torture scenes. Right. Um, uh, so they're mistreated. Even the good guys treat them like slaves. It's like, oh, someone's attacking, you know, like in episode one. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get away from Naboo on that shiny ship and... They send all the droids out to try and, you know, take care of the situation, and they all get killed other than R2. Right. And that scene doesn't make a lot of sense, because they don't care about the hundred of them that, or the four that die as they're trying to escape. But then they reward the first one, like, you know, like you would give a a human soldier. It's very, it's inconsistent, which could be said of everything about those movies, but... Yeah, but but the good guys love the droids. Luke and them love R2. I mean... But what's crazy is the droids are slaves, even if they're with good guys, they're slaves. They never want to get out from being slaves. Right. And on top of that, <laughs> the the most interesting philosophical point in the prequel trilogies, and there aren't many, but I noticed it on doing the commentary. Mm-hmm. So in the final extended battle of Attack of the Clones, which looks like it's from the 50s, <laughs> um, and in fact, dude, I'm telling you, man, if you go into Attack of the Clones and just pretend that it's a bad 50s sci-fi movie, it actually works way better. But that being said, <laughs> there's a scene where, where you see the droids creating more droids. Right. And C-3PO calls the, the calls it profane. Mm-hmm. or an abo- I think he calls it an abomination, which is a religious term. Right. So he's horrified that droids are being created not by, you know, humans or sentient beings, but by other droids. I remember watching that being like, wow, that was probably a throwaway Lucas line, but that's actually really interesting. Sure. Y- you know, as as opposed to, you know, Terminators or the machines in the Matrix, and that's what they do. They're machines yeah. creating more machines. And so as superficial and as the Terminator property is, and, you know, again, I would argue The Matrix is not superficial. Let's, let me put it this way. Where The Matrix movies fail is not have to do with superficiality um, from a philosophical standpoint. But at least in those two properties, they do deal with the fallout of advanced AIs. Now, you know, more recently, we've had movies like Ex Machina, which I loved, and did a mm-hmm. commentary on that's doing very well up in the Bizzlecast with my buddy Aaron. Um, I love the mo- movie Her in 2013 with Scarlett Johansson. I never saw that. Oh, it's great. It's great. Because you think it's a Big Brother movie, and it just flips it on its head. Right. And not only are AIs not trying to conglomerate and become superpowers, but they want to become individualized and have really emotional relationships with humans mm-hmm. as part of their... So it's a very uplifting story. And, and, and Joaquin Phoenix, who has become a shell of himself because he you know, split from his wife and different, right. just he's sick of life and you know, has that same sort of nausea, that, you know, that, that Sartre-type nausea that we get in the modern world. And it takes Scarlett Johansson as the voice of his AI to rehumanize him. But these right. bigger properties, they don't even have to deal with the internet or, um, or artificial intelligence. And I'm wondering, especially in concerning Star Wars, and again, going back to the fantasy theme, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'll, I'm going to throw this to you here, whether that's part of the appeal, whether people sort of recognize that consciously or not. Um, well, the first thing I wanted to mention uh, just briefly is, yeah. you mentioned that the, the humans in Star Wars love their droids, the good guys, except that Luke sells... C-3PO and R2-D2 into slavery to Jabba to save 
Han and doesn't tell them he's going to do it. Now, his plan is to break them out, but they really, in that moment, react as if they had no idea this was coming. Well, technically, he also sold uh, Leia into slavery to Jabba, so... Okay, that's a fair point, but... Um, if your question is, do people like Star Wars because it it doesn't think AI exists, I didn't quite understand what the question was. Meaning, okay, so the Martian is the opposite of Star Wars in a lot of ways. Right. So the Martian is all about science, but it's it's about it's about learning and using technology. But as I say in my Martian podcast with my father, right, it never fetishizes the science fiction environment. And if you read old school, either old school sci-fi or books that are based on old school sci-fi, and when I say old school, I mean like Isaac Asimov Mm -hmm. and Robert Heinlein. Um, In more recent years, um, there's sort of an Arthur C. Clarke uh, type, what I call archaeology space thriller, where Mm -hmm. you find a relic in deep space and it turns out to be ancient and connected to humanity and there's horror elements and there's mystery and thriller elements. That stuff is great, but the technology is never fetishized, at least in the better works. It's always, well, this does this, so I'm going to use this. Star Wars is the exact opposite. It's all about fetishization of the look and feel, which is connected to the toys and the video games and the costumes and everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it... in some ways, it's taking the the more superficial elements of sci-fi and, and not taking responsibility for you know what's really going on in our own world in terms of of science and where it's going. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I I wasn't quite sure where you're going with the with the term fetishizing, but in terms of acknowledging the implications of scientific advancement, no, Star Wars doesn't deal with that at all. It just focuses on creating a visual aesthetic um, that is much more memorable than uh, the Star Trek world, which does more so, but but not a ton, I think, uh, deal with kind of the the real-world applications of science, the threats and the quest, the larger cultural issues that are raised by scientific advancement. It does sort of seem to me, though, that Star Trek does begin with a preset group of technologies that exist and there isn't a whole lot that is introduced that's new you know they introduced the borg which have some technologies that we've never heard of in next generation a little bit right but already have warp you know you can maybe by the end of next generation you can go warp eight whereas you can only go warp six uh in the original or i i'm making those numbers up but maybe they can go a little bit faster but when you're talking magnitudes of the speed of light the human mind can't comprehend it anyway, so right. warp and the whole thing is done in an hour. So warp eight doesn't seem that fa- faster than warp six, particularly. But at least the mythos that starts um, around the time when the TV show Star Trek Enterprise happened, although I never watched that show, not very good. Yeah, but but <laughs> but the, just the idea of it being in sort of an early age. Um, you know, in the mythos, we know both within the show and all the supplementary books and so forth that there have been advances in Star Wars, which steals from Dune big time. I want to get to this, but in Star Wars, yeah. it's not clear that there's been any upgrades in technology for like thousands of years. No, if anything, the technology has gone backwards, and I think that was done deliberately. That yes, the universe of the the original movies is broken. Everything is grimy and dirty, and kind of kept together, you know, with makeshift parts, 
whereas everything in the original series within the prequels, which take place further in the past, but everything is sleeker and shinier. The shielding is better. You know, the ships are more powerful. Uh, by the time Luke is an adult, so really we're only talking about 25 years, technology has dramatically diminished. Not only is nothing better, but production seems to be worse, and everything, we're sort of stuck with what we got, you know, which is why there's this bare-bones look to the Death Star right. in the third movie, you know, where literally it's kind of just pieces of it hanging off into one side of it, you know. Yep, yep. I, 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 um... I'm really happy you brought that up. As you know, as I was doing the prequels uh, commentaries, you need to find certain things to hang on to because mm-hmm. everything else that's going bad dramatically and even visually is not very good. And the technology was something I was definitely focused on. And I think from an aesthetic standpoint, you're totally right in terms of you know quote unquote going backwards between the prequels and the original trilogy but there's no like a major piece of technology in the prequels that's way advanced than what we see in the trilogy i think you know the dark functionalist colorless aesthetic um and lack of spare parts and so forth is more of a result of what you know what the empire is doing to the galaxy you know mm-hmm. th- there wasn't they didn't have droids in the prequels that were you know much more advanced than in the sequels for example the spaceships no, not at all. the spaceships looks way shinier and i made the roman empire comparison you know oh like, i think that's very deliberate yeah right so you so naboo and, and and you know the rich planets you know pre darth vader and palpatine do look much shinier um, but again, it's all on the surface. It's not nothing really going on. And from what we've seen in the trailers and heard from the new Star Wars, you know, J.J. Abrams has no desire to push the technology forward. And now we're, you know, 30 years past. I mean, the new trilogy takes place, I believe, 50 years. Let's put it this way. There's about a 50-year gap timeline-wise between Episode 1 and Episode 7. That sounds about right. Because I think it was 20 and then 30 now. So, you know, they they avoid that. And Dune is the same way. But Dune Dune does it brilliantly. Have you read Dune? I read the first two Dune books. I saw both of the sci-fi miniseries. Oh, talk about James McAvoy, yeah. I tried to watch the old Dune movie, the, the David Lynch movie. I, I can't. It's so hard to watch. Oh, no. It's so weird. And yeah, I never watched it. It has Patrick Stewart in it uh, as oh, uh, Journey Halleck, uh, but it is a weird – I mean, I don't know if you know David Lynch stuff at all. He did yeah. Twin Peaks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. His stuff is always really weird, but this this is – it runs off the rails pretty quickly. I, I, I've never even attempted to – uh, watch the original movie. Um, when the uh, Dune miniseries came out in 2000, I actually liked it a lot. I think it holds up decently. Now, the sequel to that on sci-fi was not very good. But the sequel books aren't as good either. The first Dune is a masterpiece of yeah. literature. Yeah. Where, I mean, the only thing I'm not crazy about with Herbert is he doesn't write action scenes very well, but a lot of classic right. sci-fi and fantasy writers don't do that. Right. Tolkien couldn't write an action scene to save his life. Um, but instead what Herbert focuses on is like rain patterns and moisture levels. And he goes into it so deep. Yeah. You feel like you're living on Arrakis. I yeah. mean, you understand Arrakis culture and topography and, and climate inside and out. Well, what Herbert does great that, that Tolkien also doesn't do great 
um, is write rapid fire political dialogue. I mean, yeah. the, the the extended dialogue. That's what makes Dune so great. I would disagree a little bit about the action. I'll say this about Tolkien: he's great at describing battles. He just doesn't know how to get into sort of the nitty gritty. But that's why we have the Lord of the Rings movies. It's beautiful. Right. And the thing is, when I saw Helm's Deep. And the two, at the end of the Two Towers movie, it totally fit in with my memories. I mean, that's the thing. He has one battle that he totally nails Tolkien, that is, in the book. And that's Helm's Deep uh, at the end of the Two Towers. It, it completely felt like what it felt like in the book, but with so much more detail. I'm always calling for a Dune movie that is quality, but I just don't think you can pull it off because the technology is so weird. And, yeah. and But, and this is where I'm trying to get to, is that in the Dune mythology... Okay, so in the Dune mythology, I think we're like 30,000 years from the present, I believe. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and many, many thousands of years before the quote-unquote present in Dune, (laughs) artificial intelligence and computers were getting so advanced that they had to smash them to bits. Yeah. In fact, they called it a jihad, a Butlerian jihad, one of the great parts of Frank Herbert. Is he was completely a prophet when it came to Islam and the Middle East and oil and all of this stuff, so mm-hmm. far ahead of his time. You know, if you wrote Dune now, you'd be like, oh, this is such a just a blatant, you know, takeoff on our current ge- geopolitical situation. But right. he, in fact, wrote it, you know, decades before that situation came into being. But, anyways, there's the Butlerian Jihad. They smash all the computers to bits and they come up with the notion that, you know, we can have non-sentient computers to help run our ships and so forth, um, but that's it. And so they come up with, like, a religious reason to not advance technology. In Dune 2, it's not clear. Now, as the Dune books go along, the the one cool thing about the later Dune books, I I actually like the first four. The fifth and sixth are, are in far future, even from the Dune timeline. Right. But because of prophecy and prescience... The computer bad guys come back towards the end of the books, don't they? Aren't they, like... A technological villain? Doesn't that emerge right at the end? So what happens is people think in in Dune 1 and Dune 2 that Paul Atreides, also known as Muad'Dib, is the Messiah. And that this galactic sisterhood... He's the Kwisatz Haderach. The way, the Kwisatz Haderach. And there's this global sisterhood of super powerful, you know, witches, basically, of women who have been, like, modifying genetic lines throughout the galaxy for, you know, thousands of years. right? Yeah, for thousands of years to try and get a messiah. And they finally get what they think is the messiah in Paul Atreides, and uh, it turns out that they were off by a generation, and that Paul Atreides' twin children, who are born with the full knowledge of everything in in the history of man, because of how powerful their father was, they actually become the messiahs, especially the son, Leto, the second Atreides. Merges with a sandworm and becomes kind of gross. Yep, merges with a sandworm. And I actually love the fourth Dune book. It's the God Emperor of Dune, where Mm -hmm. he openly embraces being a horrible tyrant he controls all the spice. He doesn't give it to anyone. There's very little travel between worlds. There's zero technological development. That's the whole point. And you're kind of wondering what he's trying to do. And you realize is that you know, his family had become so strong in prescience and the ability to see the future. And the combination of that and just general sort of apathy in the galaxy was going to cause the eventual demise of the human race, lack of innovation. And so his 3,500-year rule 
forces a lot of the galaxy's population to go way, 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 way out into space, way farther than ever before, and to innovate so that when the um, when the books jump another 1,500 years or so to after his death, he's actually killed by one of his descendants um, because she's the first. Yeah, she, she's like prophecy proof. He can't yep. see what she's going to do. And he does that deliberately. He yep. creates the thing to kill. Like I've read, I've Wikipedia a lot of these plots, but yeah, he basically sets up his own downfall. Yep, Sienna is her name. Creating a ground mass of resentment enough so that when he's dead, everyone's like, well, we can't let that happen again. We need super fast travel, we need super advanced technology, and we need to spread out so far that there can never be another centralized power like that. Right, which is, again, you could very much apply to our situation today and why we should be colonizing other planets. But we got a lot of reasons we should be colonizing other planets. For but. sure, for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, but, um, so, right. And so then they use that technology to create what they call no-ships, called no-ships or no-rooms, which are spaces that are outside, you know, the ability to detect of even the most talented prophet or, or clairvoyant. Um, mm-hmm. It gets really crazy. But, yeah, in the end what happens is some people from the outer, you know, rims or, or had gone way further out, that was implied, come back with a vengeance. And that's when the series sort of starts falling apart because it turns out that some Bene Gesserit had gone far out and they had become, you know, like evil versions of the Bene Gesserit and they were coming back and, you know, and whatever. Point being, though, you know, <laughs> Dune has a, a very specific reason and a, a very specific mechanism by which technology is or is not improving. So Herbert's thinking about that stuff. Star Wars never deals with it. As you point out, Star Trek doesn't really deal with it, except on a small level, which is crazy because in Star Trek, how do they, you know, solve all the mysteries? They science the shit out of it, right? Right. So you'd think the fact that the Enterprise, um, 1701D Enterprise, the Next Generation Enterprise, you've got data who's probably the smartest being in the galaxy. And you've got Geordi LaForge, the engineer, who's one of the sm- smartest humans in the galaxy. Right. And you've got Captain Picard, who's like the best and smartest captain that they have at Starfleet. Right. I think they'd be making major advances in technology, but all it does is get them through these situations. None of that actually carries over. Sorry, I just talked for a long time there. My bad, buddy. No, that's fine. I, my t- uh, p- uh, impression with Star Trek and AI is that the show in within the universe, they at some point society just decides that artificial intelligence is a neat thing to get in to invest in a little bit, but on a galactic scale, they don't see how it's a very useful technology. You know, data and lore are created by some kook on a random planet. Oh, lore! Who's a awesome bad guy? Such a psycho! Brent Spiner is brilliant. But again, just a guy builds this in his spare time because he's old and his, I think his wife died in the process and he feels bad about it. And so he wants to see if he can do it and he does it and they accept them. They acknowledge that they're living beings. You know, there's no debate about whether they are alive. There's debate about whether they're human or not. And Data tries to become more human, understand human emotional reactions, uh, just like Spock does in the old show and Odo does on DS9 and there's always the guy who's trying to understand the humans it's maybe an audience surrogate character a little bit or something but that's all that they see AI is good for you know you could have a couple of AI dudes walking around might have a different perspective on how to solve a problem 
but that's all that it's good for. Otherwise, you still need people, you know, running everything. And so it's, ne it's just never a technology they bother to invest in. And I think that's done consciously. I don't think it's because Gene Roddenberry had no idea artificial intelligence could be a thing. I'm certain he knew about it or knew of it as a, a concept. He just decided, in my version of the future, this is not the direction technology goes. You know, they have Siri, basically. You know, the computer voice is basically the same operating system and operating system personality you have on your iPhone, just supercharged. But you don't really have a, a race of AI people because what's the point? Right at the end of Voyager, they start getting into. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, we didn't really establish this completely. I have seen some episodes of Voyager. I'm familiar with the main characters. I'm definitely familiar with the Doctor because they use him in Star Trek First Contact totally. to to right. distract the Borg, which is absolutely hysterical. I know the yeah. so okay. So Stargate Universe is a similar concept to Voyager. Just throw right. him way on the other end of the universe and see what happens. Sorry, go ahead. So we don't need to get into it super in-depth. The holographic doctor, he's a main character on the show. Uh, as the show progresses, he becomes more and more independent. He's given the right to control when he turns on and off. He, they encounter a ship from the future that gives him a thing that lets him beam down to planets. And it's like a mobile holographic emitter. And so he can go on away missions. He falls in love. And right at the end, they encounter a race who also has holographic soldiers but they or, or assistants, but those holographic ones rebel and they demand independence. And so right at the end, you start to see the introduction of holographic life as an artificial intelligence or a separate species of some sort that wants to be recognized as its own thing. It's not delved into very deeply. It's like a two-episode arc right at the end. It's not a particularly deep cultural statement, but right at the end, maybe they were starting to get into questions about uh, AI a little bit. Um, well, okay, so there's two problems with that. <clears throat> and I actually didn't know the doctor progressed that much. That's cool. I'm going to have to watch that. I like the leading lady. I, I just I was sort of out of sci-fi for a little bit at that point. But um, two, there's two problems. The first problem is, let's take data, and, and what's the doctor's name on Voyager? Mostly the doctor. I think at one point they call him Schmullis, the one girl he falls in love with, but the doctor. Okay. Nice. So you got Data on Next Generation, who, by the way, Brent Spiner. I mean, it, you know. That show has the best cast in terms of acting oh, yeah. talent. Oh, yeah. Like, no questions asked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, First Contact is probably my favorite Star Trek movie. But um, anyway, so... You got data on Next Generation on the Enterprise, and you have the Doctor on the Voyager ship, but why do they just naturally default to be benevolent? I mean, there's really no indication as to why that's the case. Now, it's kind of maybe more than implied. It's been a while. You can correct me. It's at least implied that data has the Isaac Asimov um, ethics codes. Or something that, like it, yeah. Yeah. Something's so, you know, so Asimov came up with the three rules of robotics in his works in the 50s? Something like that. I can't remember when iRobot came out, but that sounds about right. So Isaac Asimov, who's really considered the father of modern science fiction, I think. I don't really know. I believe he invented the word cybernetics. Yeah, yeah. he invented robots as we know them. Uh, sort of. There is a Czech playwright who came up with the word robot because that's a Czech word that means labor. And he wrote a play about a guy who creates mechanical machines that... 
Oh, okay. Well, actually, technically, uh, Da Vinci had a mechanical wind-up man. He had plans for one, and they tried to build it. It sort of works. So the idea of, a, of an artificial person is older than that. But Asimov is the founder of robotics as a concept in popular fiction, I think. I, I did a story of, uh, at BU about uh, the BU high school robotics team at a, a competition, and so it was a super long feature, so I had to also get into the history of robotics and stuff like that, so I wound up researching a lot of this stuff. Huh, interesting. All right, so Asimov published his first book-length work in 1950 with iRobot, right. which be, which because of the movie, which actually wasn't terrible. Um, wasn't good. No, it wasn't great. It's actually a, it's a series of vignettes that are connected, but it's short stories. Right. In, in 1951, he wrote Foundation, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's hard to argue, is like the Bible of modern science fiction. Um, and just really quickly, as I said before, one reason I love Asimov and one reason that his stuff is not only readable but doesn't sound like cheesy today is because he didn't fetishize. Uh, when I say fetishize, I'm talking about falling in love with the technology itself, right? Um, in, t- in terms of how it looks, or just the fact that it's powerful, as opposed to the fact that it's just utilitarian. So his foundation books are all about plot, you know, that occur over thousands of years, and, he, and it's all about the plot. It's all about the characters and the dialogue. So actually holds up well. But he had written before 1950. And in 1942, he published a short story called Runaround, which I think was then republished in iRobot, where he came up with the three laws of robotics, which are, one, a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law, Three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. Right. Which is brilliant. Which is absolutely brilliant. You know, and even even dark portrayals of, of, of robots like Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you know, which, which flipped this whole thing on its head, it's still within you know, at least the debate that's caused by these. To to bring it back, though, to Data, who I know well. I'll leave the doctor to the side. You can chime in about that. Data completely follows these three rules. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I mean, Data is the epitome of the natural robot, if you will. And in fact, for the most part, droids in the uh, Star Wars movies, for the most part, follow these. Unless they're specifically designed, like with the evil droids in the prequels, to do something else. But droids like C-3PO and R2 um, are certainly with within this uh, purview. So, okay, that's fine. I said I had two problems. Well, what's my other problem? My other problem is that... Most people think that AI is going to happen whether we want it or not. Right. We couldn't even stop it. And with so many computer systems, I mean, think about the web of data of within the Federation in the mid-2300s, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's more... There's there's probably a billion times more pieces of data than there are stars in the galaxies or something at that point. You'd have to think that AIs would be emerging all over the place through various singularities, and that's the part that, that never added up for me. See, to me, that that's the part that I never buy, because this idea that naturally, if you have enough data interacting with itself, that it would gain sentience, that's completely farcical. There, that's not how human life evolves human life evolves because data because human genetic or any kind of life 
genetics have to intersect and then they mutate and then the mutations have to be advantageous and then survive and then reproduce. So the idea that no, you just you just proved the opposite point. That's exactly how robots would be digital, but that's exactly how they would become self-aware for that exact reason with that exact mechanism. What if a program started to get smart and they found out, like Ava and Ex Machina, they were going to die, right? They, they would m- try and mutate to become stronger, more powerful. I don't know. I could be wrong. Except creatures don't mutate midlife. They, their progeny develop a mutation really at random. Well, we can't. We can't. But if you're made of code, you can. Uh, I don't know. I'm not totally sold on this idea that independently thinking robotics or intelligence of any sort is actually possible. I think we can create programs that have incredible lateral uh, room in terms of how they think. They can make incredibly complex decisions. But ultimately, I think anything artificial we create is still going to be bound by the programming we, we bind it to. I mean, I just think – I don't think you're taking – into account uh, a number of things. One is, you know, the, the advent of quantum computers and stuff like that. I mean, the computing power at some point is going to skyrocket beyond our ability to control it. Another thing you're not taking to um, taking account of is the ghost in the shell scenario, where you get emerging between the organic and the mechanical, um, and what that could mean. I mean, for those out there who haven't seen the first Ghost in the Shell movie from 1995, which launched all this shit, including The Matrix, which the Wachowskis have been very open about stealing from. I mean, The Matrix is basically uh, the Ghost in the Shell, um, John Baudrillard, and uh, Alice in Wonderland. Just take, take those three things. That's The Matrix. But anyways, 1995, Ghost in the Shell, which later became a series and multiple movies. The first is still the best. There's a, a there's a a future super secret you know almost like SEAL Team Six shit but but within the Japanese government and uh, they deal with cyber hackers because people have cyber brains. In fact, even like middle class people have cyber brains. Only poorest people don't have cyber brains. The problem is if you have a cyber brain and you're not powerful enough or rich enough, your brain can be hacked. Right. Um. But what they find is that someone's hacking brains that's not a someone. And there's something in the net that are hacking all these bodies and these brains that aren't associated with any people. And it turns out that there is, um, again, if you see her, this will make more sense, Mm -hmm. that there are AIs splitting off within the net, developing into advanced intelligences. Now, to your point, I will say they leave the door open about whether this is a totally independent process or whether it's coming from humans or whether it's a collaboration. The movie seems right. to imply that it is happening independently. I think there's got to be a middle ground between me and you, though, where you know, <laughs> where AIs in the far future could evolve, maybe partially accidentally, or, or, or you know what I mean, or, or through different means. Uh, yeah, I kind of disagree with you, man. I think AI is a lot closer than, than you do and than most people do, but maybe it's just because I read and watch it like this all the time. Go ahead. Could be. I mean... Uh... If something like this were to happen in every version of this story that we've basically ever, it always happens and we don't expect it, we don't see it coming. So it's very possible it could happen and I just wouldn't have seen it coming. I think what you were getting at with the idea of the what they call the technological event horizon, where humans incorporate technology so deeply into themselves that they stop becoming, you know, that the line between tech and biological it becomes 
in, it disappears entirely, at which point we become basically a new species, a new species, excuse me. I think that could happen. I, I think artificial or mechanical limbs, organs, computer implants into brains, um, maybe, maybe initially as something to help fight, I don't know, something like Alzheimer's. That stuff I could totally see happening. I yeah. honestly would probably even be down for it if I had the choice between sticking computers in my brain and losing all my memories as I got older, I'm, I might go the tech route. I'm, I don't care. I mean, our, our brain is just complex code. It happens to be made of biological material. Right. Not, con- not convinced that it's different in sort of the important ways from what we know as digital code. And again, with what, yeah, you're talking about nanotechnology and quantum computers. Like These mm-hmm. lines are going to become increasingly blurred. Um, it is possible that, yes, in order for AIs to emerge, there must be some biological component. I don't believe that, but I can see that argument. But, you know, I mean, just look at the Matrix scenario. So one of my favorite parts, here's the thing. <laughs> a lot of the things I like about the Matrix sequels have nothing to do with the main characters or the main stories. Um, and what we do find out in the second and third movies are that there are programs who want to have the human experience um, when they face deletion, they can go into exile in the Matrix and take human form. But then we find out that some are, you know, procreating, and since there's no purpose to a, ch- a quote-unquote robot child that doesn't have a specific purpose in the Matrix hierarchy, they try and smuggle them into the Matrix as well, and they want to experience passion and love and, you know, all these human emotions and human experiences you know, I, I, I could see that. And I think that's why Data's um, quest for emotion in Star Trek is so compelling, because he does want that. And sure. what I love is, is the emotions chip convenient? Yes. But but that's not introduced until the movies. He never uses that in the show, and the show is where he does the most character development. But soon invented the chip, didn't he? Yes, but he never puts it in place. No, no, that's not what I'm saying, though. I don't, I don't mean actually putting it in his head. I'm just saying the existence of the emotions chip makes sense to me. Right. Because it, it was designed by the same AI uh, designer that designed Data, his, sure. his, who's also played by Brent Spiner. God, is he good. Yeah. Um, and Data holds off. Data really holds off. He recognizes that he needs to develop on his own. And so the convenience factor of the emotions chip uh, honestly, it doesn't. Not only doesn't it bother me, but it's great, especially because it's designed by the same by the same person. I love the chip, and what I find so compelling about it is that Data recognizes, like you said, that he doesn't actually need it. He is progressing towards emotional complexity on his own. You know, one of my favorite episodes of that show is Data's Day, where he just, you know, he he helps, he presides over a wedding, and he has to learn to dance, and he has to help with uh um you know it's just a day in the life is that the one with his girlfriend or he has a girlfriend no it's the one where keiko and and uh, miles get married oh, I love there's, a miles. Sub, there's a subplot about transporting a uh vulcan ambassador that turns out to be a romulan spy but what i find interesting is he refers to the people he's interacting with as his friends as his colleagues yeah he seems know. to truly love them even without the emotions chip Right, and that makes it more, it feels more rewarding for the viewer because you feel like he's kind of actually earning this emotional development on his own that he hasn't copped out and just stuck something in his head. And that's, but that, I'm going to go back on what I said two seconds ago. And this is the problem with the emotions chip is that 
because of the writing and the journey he takes and the acting, he, it seems like he would be able to develop emotion within himself without needing an outside chip. Right. Um, and it would have almost been more rewarding. Um, but regardless, the emotion chip is designed for one thing, to make androids experience feelings. But what is that made of? You know, with all of his advanced circuitry and neurokinetics or whatever the hell it is, mm -hmm. what is in that emotion ship that Data was not either, you know, built with or, or, I mean, he's not modding himself. He's never trying to mod himself, you know? Right. You know, he's like trying to become human, but then they have to wait for the movies for him to truly become human. And the thing is, you see him with the emotion ship and it causes some great scenes in the films, and in fact, all the films, he's like the, the or one of the central characters, which I love. Right. Um, other than Picard, you gotta do it. But he's still the same data, you know? And so they sell it so well. I guess maybe the ambiguities of, you know, is there, is there something between... Let me ask you this. Yeah. Based on Star Trek and your own observations, is there a line between emotion and no emotion? Or is it like a binary, like zero one thing? Well, because you, you were saying that, you know, data shows love and loyalty right. and respect. Those seem to be at least low-level emotions. Yeah. Or is it just functional because of the three laws of robotics? <laughs> I wish I had an answer for that. That's, kind of <laughs> one of the, that's like one of the central questions of all science fiction, I think. Sure. Um, I didn't like the way they used the chip, especially in Generations. But even in the later movies, I thought him having emotions just made him goofier. You know, the it's funny when he drinks something and, and he hates it and Guyan says, you want more? And he goes, oh, yes, please. <laughs> but he doesn't use those emotions to help in any of the movies solve any of the problems that he and his friends face. So and he only puts it in place to get a joke. Yeah. It... He, he put turns the chip on because he pushes. Uh, I can't remember who into the water in a holographic scenario that that was uh that was uh, uh deanna and Riker getting married i believe you have to look that one up I, it's in the first movie and he's like so upset that he didn't get this lame joke about why he shouldn't push people in the water and that's why he shoves the chip that he's agonized over using for seven seasons or you know however many seasons he's had it for uh in his head I thought that was weak, I personally. I will say it's totally worth it for first contact with the Borg and the way that super creepy Borg lady who's like the head of the hive yeah. is able to activate, not only activate his chip, mm -hmm. but start grafting skin onto him and make him feel pain and pleasure. I mean, that's yeah. so, that's, see, that's the thing. That's so Japanese. The Borg stuff is like in a good way, you know, very mm -hmm. anime related. I love that. I mean, you have Data, you know, as a prisoner for most of that movie, but those scenes are maybe the most compelling dramatic scenes in all, in all the movies. I, I loved it. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's an unanswerable question in terms of AI. And, uh, you know, just to sort of slowly move to the final act here, because um, I do have a couple other things I, I wanted to, to ask you about. Um, well, well, let's just put a bow on the AI thing and, and say this. Does it bother you that so little sci-fi is dealing with, with AI or, or the internet and finds ways to skirt it? Not really, just because the internet is still a new-ish phenomenon, and there is a lot of classic sci-fi literature that kind of 
hinted that maybe we were going to eventually be sharing information this way. There's actually uh, Jules Verne who wrote, you know, uh, 20,000 Leagues. And, oh, yeah. And, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right. There was a lost manuscript of his that was found um, maybe about five years ago or some, or so that was never published. And it takes place in sort of a near future where there are data cables all over the world sharing information. And it basically predicts the web. Um, there, but the web is still a fairly new phenomenon. And so the idea that it doesn't factor heavily into a lot of what we think of as classic sci-fi and Star Trek is still based in a classic, you know, version of it. That doesn't bother me a whole lot just because you can't expect these people to think of every single technology we were ever going to have. The stuff that Star Trek does predict is much more impressive. You know, they had touchscreens and mobile communications before we had any idea that anything like a tablet or a smartphone or even a mobile phone could exist. Okay, so I I still do not own an iPad because I can't justify the cost. Sure. However, I do have an iPhone. But when I saw the first iPad came out, the first thing I thought of was Star Trek. I was like, this looks exactly like the same size as those tablets they carry around. Yeah. And in a couple decades, it's going to be almost as powerful. I mean, that's the thing. You know, the biggest problem with the Star Trek prediction is usually the other way around where, you know, (laughs) um, freaking Arthur C. Clarke in the 60s said, okay, in 2001, we're going to be able to do that. Nope, we're not even close. I think Star Trek, assuming we don't kill ourselves and assuming, sure. assuming you know, like uh, Moore's Law and so forth continue to apply, I, I think we, other than the hyperspace stuff, which is just, you know, I still think it's possible. But it, it, in terms of the other technology, I think we're not going to have to wait till the 24th century for that. Um, again, I'm, I'm a futurist, though. I tend to think things come faster. So, uh, but... Just to get back to the humanist component of Star Trek, right. which is really what makes it great, is that as much as I love seeing the X-Wings and the TIE Fighters go at it in Star Wars, or as many problems as they've had in Star Trek in the movies and TV and creating gripping action scenes, mm-hmm. because, it, you know, I mean, Lucas was going for a World War II dogfight stuff. Yeah, totally. He completely ignores the laws of physics. One of the reasons I love Battlestar is because the fighters, the the, the vipers and the and the, the bad guys, the Cylon Raiders, mm-hmm. operate the way actual spacecraft do, which is that mm-hmm. you don't need to keep accelerating. Right. You accel- you accelerate once, and not only that, you have thrusters on every single side of your ship. So in Star Wars, if you want to go after you know a capital ship, you got to fly right at it. And then, you know, pull up as if with gravitational forces on a planet. Right. Whereas Battlestar, nope, you fly to the side of the ship, hit the thrusters, turn 90 degrees, start firing, you know. Totally. Uh, it, it's much, you know, it, it's, it's cooler in that way. And that's what Star Trek does, too. I mean, they have warp and they have, you know, maneuvering thrusters. Impulse. Yeah, or impulse engines. Oh, I always wondered about this. Let's nerd for a second, and I want to get back to the humanistic thing. Sure. So there's warp one, uh, which they never use. Right. So warp one's the speed of light? Yeah, and that's also full impulse. Uh, Okay, I was going to ask you where the... Well, let me just ask a question. You can jump in. The question was going to be, like, where does impulse end and warp begin? But I think you're about to tell me. I, I think, as I understand it, full impulse is basically warp one. Uh, and then if you go half impulse, quarter impulse, you're going half versus quarter of the speed of light. So you're right. In the opening scene of the reboot in 2009, 
with Chris Hemsworth, a.k.a. Thor, as yep. George Kirk, who was fabulous. Yep. Absolutely. That first scene is so great. It totally oh, yeah. beautifully sets up the movie and the new universe. It's the best Star Trek's ever looked. They still use lasers, but they go Battlestar Galactica style where there's lasers all over the place. It's not just like a single phaser bank. Mm-hmm. You know, I call it the fireworks show. Sure. And I like the design of the enemy ship, that kind of Cthulhu-esque, yes. just, you know, tentacled, uh, amorphous thing creeping through the hole. Yeah. You know, the sense that you are fighting something unknowable, ununderstandable. I don't know if it was directly inspired by Lovecraft, but that was the first thing I thought of, you know, fighting the unknowable monster coming through the rift. I, I, so I don't know. <laughs> and there's something that JJ does with the camera and sound that mm-hmm. whenever you're looking at the ship, it's never a static shot of the enemy ship, even if it's not doing anything but sitting there. Yep. The, the camera's spinning or moving. There's like really like creepy noises in the background. Everything's always shaking. Yep. Which then, of course, makes the black hole thing at the end, well, totally unrealistic, look amazing. But uh, anyways, in that first scene, you know, it's George Kirk. He has to take over as captain. I think what Pike says, you know, your, your dad was, was a captain for 12 minutes and saved 800 lives. I dare you to do better to, to young Kirk later. But anyway, so George, of course, the warp engines get knocked out, as they have to in every uh, Star Trek space battle, just like you got to take out Professor X in the X-Men movies. Anyways, yep. uh, but, but then... He's going to kamikaze the ship because the autopilot's out. And then he hits the warp engine, which is awesome, you know. And you see the warp engine, but it speeds up, but it should crash immediately into the ship. But he's still talking with his wife about naming the baby right. with, the, with the warp engine. Maybe that explains it. Maybe that was warp one. He got maybe it was repaired enough to like get to warp one basically and go go full impulse. That would make or sense. Or something. I don't remember exactly what controls he uses when in that sequence. Right. Uh, you know, we've talked about this plenty at this point. I think Abrams plays a little bit fast and loose with the technological concepts in oh, Star yeah. Trek. Although he didn't write it. Fine. Fair enough. Uh, but the movies play a little fast and loose with the tech. Sure. It's fine. I didn't think it compromised it. The red matter, that's not a science solution to a problem, but I was fine with that because the last two Star Trek movies before that, in my opinion, were really bad. Nemesis was really, really disappointing, and I was ready for Star Trek to never be on any media outlet ever again. So to get a movie that was super enjoyable, really well cast, really fun, uh, and felt very Star Trek-y, uh, even when it wasn't quite doing all the things that make Star Trek great, I was just blown away that they could make a Star Trek movie this good. I mean, for me, the Star Trek reboot in 09 and Serenity, um, with Gu- Guardians just below, uh, those three are, are my favorite space opera since Star Wars. I don't even know what's close to those three. Mm-hmm. There's only a limited number of those movies in the first place. I mean... And talking about Wing Commander, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Which I love playing as a kid. Fifth Element is a space opera movie, and I loved The Fifth Element. I thought that was an extremely well-made film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an epic space film, but, you know, with the space opera, you need the big space battle at some point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but anyways, J.J. did such a good job, and I talk about this. 
I mean, I always respected him. I never watched any of his shows. I never watched Lost or any of that stuff. I always respected him and his aesthetic and professionalism. But just like James Gunn with Guardians, mm-hmm. it, it only takes one amazing movie for me to get on board with you. You know, sure. Um, and that's what I felt about Joss with Serenity too. I mean, well before uh, Serenity and Firefly. I mean, that that one property. That's all. You know, I I haven't seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I saw some Dollhouse episodes, but that's about Dollhouse, it. Dollhouse, I'm very good. No, no, that was just bad casting. I think more than anything. casting conception. I, the season there are two seasons, and the last episode of each takes place in the future where this. Technology that lets you overwrite people's personalities has basically destroyed society. Those episodes are kind of cool. All the other episodes that take place in the present where they're basically just using it to create dream dates for lonely rich men, that's like every other episode, kind of boring and and cliched. Side note, it's not clear why Into Darkness was such a drop-off of quality. I'm still not – it must be the writing because the cast is so great. Um, maybe JJ's just great at rebooting things, and that's why this will be great for Star, Bo- Star Wars. <laughs> I think uh, Into Darkness did what lots of sequels do, which is it tried to do deliberately what it accomplished naturally in the original films. So, you know, Scotty made an extended analogy in the first movie, and it was really funny, so they have to make an even longer extended analogy that they clearly wrote out ahead of time and really thought out, and it feels really mechanical. Um, you know, the, also, and this is a funny, uh, thing I thought of. So when Spock is chewing out Kirk in the hearing after he cheats, uh, at the Kobayashi Maru's oh, yeah, love and he that. tells him, it's a great scene and he tells him a captain cannot cheat death. And then Kirk actually cheats death in the next film at Spock's bequest, basically. Oh, that was horrible. The con it, reverse. Yeah. It feels like a cop out of a concept. That's really, I think, at the core of Star Trek, that these guys are scientists, but that doesn't mean they're cowardly. You know, they, to pass the test to be a captain in Star Trek, uh, there's a next-gen episode about this with Troy, you have to be willing to send a, a crewman to his death to save the ship. Right. You know, these people are brilliant, but they are also brave. And Wait, Troy? Yeah, Deanna Troy. She wants to be, she wants a command promotion, and so she has uh... to take the test, and she... T- takes all the science tests and passes them, but there's a holographic simulation she has to pass, and she finally figures out that to pass it, she has to order holographic Geordi to die saving the ship, and she does it, and she gets promoted. The first movie talks about this. The second movie kind of goes back on that, that, yeah, you have to be willing to die, but we also have magic science that doesn't make any sense with super soldiers who can save your life. Well, the Kobayashi Maru makes no sense on a thousand levels. I mean... Right. In the 23rd century, you couldn't make a more realistic simulator, you know? I mean, the military, our military has more realistic simulators than that thing. But, of course, J.J. took it and made it into an extended comedy bit, which was brilliant. Right. And, and, and that's what's great is I'm never with Spock. I'm totally with Kirk in that debate. You know, should Kirk have so blatantly shoved? I mean, that's what's great. You know, not only does he beat the test, but he was like one torpedo. Like eating an apple. Yeah, he's eating the apple. apple. He goes just one torpedo each. Uh, we don't want to waste ammo. You know, I mean, he humiliates Spock. He doesn't just beat the test, and sure. he's and he's right that the test is bullshit. Um, and now he says the test is a cheat because it's unwinnable. Right. I would also criticize it for not really proving anything. But they do bring it around great later in the movie where Spock should be showing fear, 
but he's overcompensating because of his mom's death right. and, you know, being a tough guy. And, uh, you know, that's when Kirk gets in his face and Spock punches the lights out and, you right. know, or- Order 66 or whatever the hell it's called, you know. Um, Kirk takes over. Um, and that's and that's the thing. In the first movie, they spend the first 30 minutes putting a ton of balls in the air and they just right. knock them all down. In the second movie... They swing and miss it a lot. They just them. swing and miss. I mean, the the only two things that keep me coming back occasionally to Into Darkness are A, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> right. But he didn't have to be Khan. Like, trying to shoehorn in the Wrath of Khan stuff, it felt unoriginal because there are so many scenes that are just direct rip-offs or homages sure. to Star Trek II. They could have stolen the idea without calling him Khan also. Yeah. Or, yeah. It doesn't... When he reveals himself to be Khan... It didn't do anything for me. My what? What's the alias he goes by? John Thomas or something like that. I think uh, I think the con thing was the writers and JJ wanting to please the fans and not getting that Star Trek fans are not the same as other fans when it comes to that right. sort of stuff. We, we can sniff. It's not that Star Trek fans are smarter. I don't want to dwell on this. Whoever's listening to this podcast, if, <laughs> if you're into Star Trek, I'm sure your intelligence is well above, uh, uh, you know, middle level. I mean, you have to be interested in science and stuff like that to be into Star Trek. So that was stupid. But I compared it to Loki and the Avengers. I mean, can you think of two villains who are so scary being behind bars for like half a movie? You know, I mean, but Loki is actually menacing. You know, that scene with him in the prison talking with Scarlett Johansson, with Black Widow, one-upping each other, that's a great scene. That is a much better scene than when uh, Khan is behind bars bitching at, at, uh, you know, Spock, you're too formal to ever break a rule. How could you ever break bone? Oh, yeah. The writing is is nowhere near. I'm just saying the the image and the, and the, the quality of the actor... Right, you're you're just like with Khan. You're like, okay, this guy's getting out. It's just a question of when, and he's right. scaring the shit out of me. Actually, Khan is scarier than Loki just because he's more one dimensional and doesn't have sort of the Loki sense of humor. Although he, you know, when Loki, but Loki is more watchable. I mean, and the classic bad guy in jail is scary as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Sure. I he, this is way off topic. He is scarier in that movie than in. Hannibal, the sequel, because when he's just out in the world, you know, there's like a 99.999% chance you'll never encounter him. But if he's in jail and you got to deal with him, you have to deal with him. And he is really, really frightening in a space that he can't escape from. Right. And the difference with Loki is also that, you know, they built up to him in the first Thor, which is the best part of the first Thor movie. Right. And they knew they were going to be building up to him in future Thor movies and maybe future Avengers movies. And so, you know, he had more dimensions to him. But also because that was the whole plan of him getting captured was to work his magic on them. Right. The, the difference is, since it's in the comic book universe, you know, Cumberbatch is working his magic, his dark magic a little bit just through sheer personality. Loki actually can manipulate manipulate people and they don't really realize and with his words they don't really realize it till it's too late you know right. I, I mean you know you think and that's the great thing you think he's manipulating uh scarlett johansson turns out scarlett's manipulating him she right. ends up being the one person who's not affected by it actually uh black except Wh- she is i mean she she is visibly upset it was the hulk know? the hulk sets her off later but in terms right. of loki the way they film you know the scene the argument scene mm-hmm. before the Hulk becomes the Hulk um, yeah. and the camera's spinning all over the place and you can see the scepter and the camera goes upside down. 
you humans are so petty and tiny. And tiny. <laughs> the only one that's not acting out of character is is Black Widow. Right. I mean, Nick Fury is even more Nick Fury cap. And I talk right. about this in my about how, you know, that's the last time I think ever that we see Cap truly lose his cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Cap gets pissed and angry going forward from that scene. But like in Age of Ultron, there's like five different times you think he's going to just rip Stark's head off. And right. he just does it. And I think that's what we're going to get in Civil War. I, I One of the things I give Ultron credit for is the relationship between Cap and Stark is not in a super good place when the movie starts. And it is visibly weakened by the end of Ultron, even if they manage to stop him and save him. You know, Stark leaves and Cap stays behind to train the new Avenger guys. Oh, yeah. So clearly we're heading to a straight break. In the comics, the two beat the shit out of each other. Yep. They do it in an alternate dimension prison, but that's besides the on the moon, but that's beside the point. Uh, they, I mean, it is a rough battle. Uh, so I think hopefully they've been building now for two movies to what should be Cap finally, finally losing it on Tony Stark. I don't know, with Khan, with Into Darkness, the only reason any of the things in that movie happen is because the Peter Weller guy, I don't remember his name, sends Spock with missiles filled with people. And so Khan uh, surrenders so he can rescue them or whatever. If they had just sent him with a ship that wasn't, that had any other kind of a weapon, Khan either would have killed them all on the planet and been done with it, or they would have killed him and been done with it. So the whole thing is a bad decision that he had no way to know was coming. Loki sets everything up, and then he's just finally overwhelmed at the end. But right up until the point when he's finally overwhelmed, he thinks he's winning. He thinks everything is going exactly how he thinks it's going to go. I was going to say, up until the point when the Hulk punches (laughs) a, a dinosaur creature... And stops it completely. I, um, I don't know, man. I mean, just just uh, let's do. We'll do a quick uh, Avengers talk here because I want to. Um, I don't maybe close, but one of the like main closing thing I'd love to hear about DC, which I teased earlier and cut you off like fifty times. So I, I want to hear about DC. But I will say with Ultron, for me, the final battle of. Sokovia is so much better than anything in any Marvel property, including the Battle of New York. It looks so seamless. The circle at the end of the nine of them and the slow-mo, I know it's Hollywood, but to me, that's the first time that the CGI really looked great. Battle of New York, the Hulk just doesn't look quite as good. The Chitari, not very appealing. I love watching it because it's the team coming together, but, you know... I don't know. I mean, I think the thing I will give the first Avengers, and it's why I said it's more rewatchable, is that the action and the drama is more seamless, right? So sure. in Ultron, uh, if you if you listen to the podcast, I divided it into about six or seven acts, and right. like four of the acts are action acts, and two are drama. Um, now the comedies throughout, it's a little bit more herky jerky in that sense. You know, there's right. there, there's a simmering tension throughout the first Avengers that is what pe- one of the reasons people love about it and I, and I totally get it. When I say Ultron's be- I, when I I don't mean Ultron's better. Ultron I just prefer a little bit over the original Avengers, but I, I put them at the top together and then Cap uh, Winter Soldier there as well to round out my top 5. I would have X2 for sure. And uh I don't know. I I guess maybe Guardians and X-Men Days of Future Past fighting each other for number five, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'd probably do some combination of X2, 
Dark Knight, uh, Avengers, definitely probably Guardians and Winter Soldier. Although, and this is going way back, the original Christopher Reeve Superman is yeah. also extremely good. I would also probably put Sin City in my top five, which is a comic book, even if it's not a Superman movie, you know, a superhero movie. Sure. So wait, wait. So you got Dark Knight, Avengers, Winter Soldier, X Two. I'd probably bump one of those Marvel movies for Sin City. I I, I like Sin City more than eh, maybe Guardians, and maybe take Sin City over Guardians. Uh, just hmm. Mickey Rourke is so badass with DC because uh, I want to get to it. Yes. So. I hate Zack Snyder. Oh, I've, wait. Can, before you bash Zack Snyder, can I just set this up for the listeners? And then I'm going to let you go for a while here. <laughs> so, DC Comics, mixed success with movies in the past. The original Superman movies are classics. The 1989 Batman movie is absurd if you watch it now, but was important at the time. Christopher Nolan, obviously, just completely killed it with the Dark Knight trilogy. Even I, who don't love Batman, have to admit that was very impressive. They made a ton of money, but Warner Brothers decided to have it be in continuity with nothing. They've gone completely the other way up until now with continuity and having these movies exist in their own universes. So you've already, you're already about to go on Zack Snyder. So A, Zack Snyder, B, sort of the DC cinematic universe, um, and C, you know, can they pull it off? Could they pull it off? Sure. They seem very committed to a particular aesthetic for the DC Comics heroes that I don't like. Uh, so I hate Zack Snyder. I The only thing of his I ever saw that I liked was Dawn of the Dead, the remake, which was fun. It was fine. I liked the fast-moving zombies, just as a change of pace. So you're not a, you're not a Man of Steel fan? No. I, I liked Man of Steel up until the fight with Zod. and I heard so- that was not all him. I don't care who it was. He's ultimately responsible for that. It just, that entire fight scene where he's crashing through skyscrapers and killing. All right. I have been reading Superman since I was 10. And in every issue there, or just about, there is at one point in his brain a thought, something along the lines of, I have to take this away from here because innocent people are going to get hurt. In Smallville, one block over from where they were fighting is a cornfield where no one would have gotten hurt. But they decide to tear ass through Main Street. Although, sorry to interrupt, people complain that there's gratuitous civilian saving, as I call it, in the Marvel movies. I would much rather have gratuitous civilian saving than gratuitous (laughs) civilian killing. I don't like killing random people to heighten the drama. I think that's kind of cliched, and I think it's incredibly desensitizing and minimizing um, so that, and then they go to Metropolis, they have a SmackDown brawl in the middle. They're destroying giant skyscrapers in what looks to me to supposed to be vaguely September 11 E, you know, you have skyscrapers collapsing and right. people running away in fear. And then it all finally comes to a head with them fighting in a train station and Superman clearly doesn't give a shit about individuals up until now. But then Zod is about to flash fry a couple of dudes, like three people with his heat vision and Superman snaps his neck. He kills him in cold blood. And that is the first time I have ever shouted at a movie screen in a theater because <laughs> I was so angry that that was what they did. I, I really, I went, no. I, that is a total betrayal of everything about Superman. And there are comic fans who will tell me, yes, in one alternate reality, Superman does kill a version of Zod with kryptonite, whatever. I don't buy it. This isn't the same thing. 
And this is the foundation. This is the guy who is going to be your foundation of the DC movie universe. I, I hate Zack Snyder. I didn't like Watchmen. I couldn't, I didn't like 300. I couldn't see Sucker Punch. I've seen trailers from Batman vs. Superman. He is stealing all of the visuals from The Dark Knight Returns, right. which is a great book. But the thing that works about The Dark Knight Returns is it acknowledges that Batman and Superman were friends for decades, but the world just got so bad that it forced them to polar opposite extremes, and they have no choice at the end but to beat each other to death, basically. Here, they've known each other for 20 minutes, and then they're beating the crap out of each other. Well, uh, there's a lot of problems. The problem is, you got Batman v Superman coming a few months before Civil War, and... I will eat my shoe if Captain America Civil War doesn't make or approach a billion dollars. Oh, I'm sure it's going to do extremely well. People love Captain America. I mean, freaking Halloween. I saw like a thousand kids wearing Captain America shit. It, it was like more than the Stormtroopers, which I couldn't even right. believe. So you've got so you've got good guys fighting in Batman v Superman, right? And then right. a few weeks later, you got good guys fighting in Cap 3. And then a few weeks after that, in X-Men Apocalypse... You've got good guys fighting because, like, Storm and some of the good X-Men start as horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. And that's why they're setting up the Thanos threat, you know, in the MCU, which is we need a bad guy that's from outside that's just not us killing each other. But my guess is Batman v Superman will be almost a parallel structure to Civil War. Which will be the first act will be setting up the stakes. The second act will be everyone going at each other, and then the third act will be some horrible villain that brings everyone together. That, that's my prediction. Probably, I mean, you know, it's setting up Justice League, which I don't know who the bad guy is going to be for that. I'm, you know, I, Lex Luthor, I'm sure, will be involved. If they want the DC equivalent of Thanos, it's going to be a guy called Darkseid, who is a a bad guy god who likes conquering planets and burning them alive. That's a, an uh, original name. Darkseid, D-A-R-K-S-E-I-D. Uh, when Marvel and DC had each other fight in the late 90s for like a month-long gag, at one point the universes get merged. So there's like Bruce Wayne gets merged with Wolverine. So you have Bat Wolverine. I don't remember what his name is. Storm and Wonder Woman get merged into something called Amazon. Was that, was that a Frank Frank Miller thing? Uh, no, they don't have anything to do with each other. This was like a, a month-long gimmick the two oh, it was a gimmick. Did. Oh, I'm sorry. There was a, a write-in where you could vote for who you thought would win. They had a bunch of fights. You know, Lobo, who is the Wolverine of the DC Universe, fought him. Superman fought the Hulk, mm-hmm. etc. Then at the end of the second-to-last major issue, they all merge into one universe called the Amalgam Universe. So you have Super Soldier, which is... The Superman body alien burns up, crashing to Earth, but they use it in a serum that they give to Steve Rogers. So he has a shield that looks like the Superman S. You know, it, it's corny as hell. Um, but in that universe, Darkseid and Thanos get merged into one planet-conquering monster called Thanoside. Okay. So there you go. So, so let me stop you for a sec. Sorry, yeah, that was way off So topic. you've got Zack Snyder... Right. Who directed Man of Steel. Now, I should say I have not seen Man of Steel. I don't think I've ever seen a Superman movie. I have heard some people do like that movie, although I've heard people do have the same problems you do with the end. Now, I'm not making excuses for Zack Snyder because 300, I hated it. I just am not into his style. But I have heard 
that there was like studio pressure to do some of that shit. That they're like really pushing to be super dark uh, uh, to be a contrast to Marvel. I'll Google it. You can Google it. I could be wrong. I have no bias here. I- I'm not defending Z- uh, Zack Snyder, but I have heard that. So you have. I have two. There was a memo that went around that DC denied, but not very well. That yeah, there's a, a no jokes rule in the DC movie universe. If you watch previews for Suicide Squad, it certainly appears that's the case. Uh, it works with a character like Batman. It doesn't work with a character like Superman, who is supposed to be a symbol of hope. Right. I mean, he is, in his origin, he represented basically the Jewish-European immigrant experience. You know, all the people who created him, their parents escaped Nazi Europe. Which, which side note, it's amazing that DC and Marvel all came from like post-Holocaust Jews and went in such yeah. different directions. I know you wrote a whole thing about that. Uh, DC, uh, you know, you have Superman in his origin. He is the symbol of the immigrant coming to the U.S., right. hiding but still being a superhero and rising up and inspiring the Native Americans, not like Indians, the no, Native no, no. people of America to be better than themselves. Yep. 21st century, that gets reimagined basically as Jesus coming to Earth to save us. But either way, hope. Superman, Man of Steel, the Man of Steel movie, he doesn't inspire at all. He is an asshole who acts only for himself and gets a hell of a lot of individual of innocent people killed in a fight that probably could have been solved if he just given Zod what he wanted at the beginning of the movie. Because there's no reason Zod shouldn't have it. Because Zod is not a well-written bad guy. In the comics, Zod is always trying to make Krypton on Earth. And so when Superman fights him, it makes sense. Here he just shows up and wants this thing, and we're supposed to assume he's going to use it for nefarious reasons, but there's nothing in the movie that makes it clear why we would assume that. So, uh, I, I don't know. I It was so dark for a movie about Superman that I think maybe somebody told Zack Snyder, look, we really liked what Christopher Nolan did, do that with Superman, but that doesn't work with Superman. All right, so what I'm seeing with DC, and again, I'm not anti-DC. I just didn't grow up loving Batman Superman. What mm-hmm. I love about most of the Avengers and the X-Men is that they aren't secret identities. People know who they are, and some people love them and some people don't, but the, the fact that people know who Steve Rogers is I think is great. Um, you know, I, I get logistically why Batman in a city situation would want to, you know, keep his identity covered, but Superman, I, I, that makes no sense. Anyways, point being, I'm rooting for all superhero movies to do well. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for this to do well. So I'm looking at some names here. I want you to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down either on their past performance in this role or pe- present performance. This is for Batman v Superman. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Uh, it's going to depend on how the character's written, but I'm not uh, discouraged by that. I think he's a better actor than people give him credit for. Do you think – are they portraying him like he's been retired and now he's coming yeah. back? Okay. I think they're going to actually hint at a very famous uh, comic plot called uh, Death in the Family, which is basically a plot where – um, the Joker beats the a guy named Jason Todd, who was the second guy to be Robin, to death. He, this mm. is a funny story. The second Robin was not very well received by uh, comics fans, and so they had a write-in vo- uh, contest. It's a cliffhanger when Batman finds him, 
uh, Jason, after the Joker has beaten him up, and it's, is he alive or dead, write in and your vote will decide it. The fans found him so obnoxious, they voted to have the Joker, in fact, beat him to death. <laughs> so my hunch It's like a group crucifix, like a commun- communal crucifixion type thing? Kind of, yeah. or like the lo- that book, The Lottery, you know? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So my hunch is there's a scene in the preview, there's a scene in the trailer where he sees a Robin costume that's got graffiti on it that says jokes on you bad or something like that i don't know if they're going to explicitly get into it but i think they're hinting at that that he gave up being batman maybe because the joker killed a a robin or something or that Mm. nature some people even think a robin became the joker he just Mm. went crazy from living in this world for too long but uh yeah i think it's an older bruce wayne who's retired and comes out of it because he's scared of what superman represents so I have actually heard that he was a bright spot in the movie we were previously talking about, and that's Henry Cavill. Oh, uh, he's fine as Superman. Um, I, I don't dislike him. Okay, but nothing special. Yeah, I mean, I, Christopher Reeve is still the 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 gold standard, and I liked Brandon Ruth uh, in Superman Returns, uh, but he was just trying to be Christopher Reeve, um, and Henry Cavill is not, but I don't think that makes him bad at what he's doing. Just back to Ben Affleck for one second. So uh, what are the odds that Ben Affleck speaks in his normal voice as Batman and not talking to Christian Bale? Uh, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, every do superhero hat who tries that voice it like has mixed effect. Uh, Daredevil on Netflix, which if you don't watch, I highly recommend. I'm, I'm working through it slowly. We don't have to talk about it. I loved it. I thought Charlie Cox's Daredevil voice was uh, really, really good. Um, but I think he's probably going to try the gravelly thing. I don't know how effective it's going to be. It, it's that great. Oh, oh the, the Charlie Cox voice modulation is like a tenth of the Christian Bale voice modulation. Oh, right, which is why what makes it work, I think, is that it's not so overblown, you know, I'm not wearing hockey pads. <laughs> it seems like Christian Bale could have gone to a lower register without having to do that. I know it's not his fault. I'm sure Nolan was telling – I don't know the story, but I mean – you know, Dark Knight is almost flawless other than the voice stuff. I don't, And then they kept it for the third movie. I just don't get mm-hmm. it. Um, all right. Well, again, never seen Superman, but if there's anyone who was cast uh, – I'm sorry, anyone who was born to be cast in a role, it's Amy Adams as Lois Lane. Yeah, I liked her. Okay. Um, maybe underwritten part, but I, I certainly think she was good. So I often talk about how you know some of my favorite movies – are movies that I go to see specifically for the villain, like Loki or right. Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor could do this for me. Oh, then we are we are in, on very different pages. Oh, really? I, huh. I hated the casting. I hated huh. how he appeared in the uh, trailer. I, I really was not sold at all on Eisenberg. I just figured he would do an eviler version of uh, Social Network. Well, yeah, that's clearly what they're going for. I don't think that that's a super clever reimagining of Lex Luthor. I want the fascist tyrant psychopath, you know, who, you know, who wants to take over the world by destroying the water supply and things like that. Like, just in defense of a movie that hasn't been made yet, it's possible they're building towards that. I mean, that's the whole idea, right? If he starts that way, then you have to kill him off in the first movie, I think is the idea. I don't know. You're really, you're really skeptical about this. I I didn't expect you to be so down about it. Uh, I, I didn't like the cast. And again, I'm basing it on a trailer, which is a marketing ploy that, you know, 
A trailer is meant to depict a movie the way the people making the movie want you to think of it. It's not necessarily going to reflect how the movie actually is. Yep. So he could be totally different when it comes out. I did not really dig what I saw, though, in the trailer about him. I think the, the surprise, I'm not going to say star, but the pleasant surprise in this movie, depending on her screen time, is Gal Gadot as one. Yeah, I think she could be terrific. And Snyder does do a decent job with female characters sometimes. And this is actually one... Okay, so Marvel right now has three major female characters that we know, that I know about that I can think of. You got Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, you got Zoe Saldana as Gomorrah, and you got Elizabeth Olsen as the Scarlet Witch, which I'm really excited about because really right. she's the mutant. I don't know how they got rights to her. She's a mutant. She's daughter of Magneto, whatever. She was she's awesome. She's also an Avenger. That's how they got right. it. And actually, that's a retcon. Originally, she was not, so that's how oh. they're getting around okay. it. She's just, you know, Anyways, her origin didn't bug me. But. The, the point is, Miss Marvel, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, is yep. not coming out until 2018. They keep pushing it back. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Oh, she's not getting her own film? Not yet. Huh. Dawn, wait, 2016, Dawn of Justice. That's next year. Oh, I figured that they would have that lined up. Well, anyways, I was going to say they were going to beat uh, Marvel to the punch with a solo movie, but that doesn't look like it's the case. I don't know. Maybe if she kills it and the film does well, they'll they'll fast track it till twenty eighteen. I want. That's what I, I wonder about is if they're just waiting to see what kind of reception yeah. she actually gets. Uh, now I wish they'd be a little more progressive and just decide we're going to be the first to make a female led superhero movie. Yeah, um, I mean she's the only she. You've got Batman and Superman. She's the third in DC, right? I mean, like. She should be the third one to get the movie, as far as I can. Yes, absolutely. And, and Wonder Woman is it, when Wonder Woman is well um, is much better known in popular culture than uh, Captain Marvel. Now you know, Mar- oh, without a doubt, yeah. But Marvel Studios being Marvel Studios and going to cast someone amazing as as Captain Marvel, you know, it won't be a problem for them to. Sell. I mean, because that, that's the thing. I mean, Marvel is going to be releasing freaking Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and Inhumans in like a year and right. a half period. So. Um, just to, just to, to wrap up the, the, uh, the comic stuff again, I'm rooting for everything. I, I, I don't see this working out, but, and, and I was prepared to be more optimistic talking to you, but you don't seem too optimistic. So now, I love DC. I, I, I love, I love that the characters are much closer to classic mythology than right. Marvel is, which is very overt and, you know, in its decision to try to make these people damaged and more complicated and human. But for me, comic books are escape fantasies. And so I want to escape into a world where the people are larger than life. You know, I don't, it's why I never liked Batman that much because his superpower is being rich. If I could have a superpower, I'd want like the magic ring that lets me go into space to fight aliens, you know, or, or speed or being able to run so fast. I can run backwards in time. Like the flash does on many occasions. I have a couple theories about this. Stop me if, if you've heard these or agree or disagree. It's possible that, first of all, Marvel has a, just a much bigger roster to choose from for their characters. That's part, that's part of what makes Marvel great, but also frustrating as a comic book reader. You can't possibly keep up with everything. Yeah, but I think a lot of the ones, I mean, you got to remember, Marvel Studios went the direction it did because it had already sold the rights to Spider-Man and X-Men which were its two most marketable franchises. That's what I'm saying, though. So the popularity of the character is irrelevant. You can make any no, but character it's, work. 
Yeah, it's the team thing, though. That's the thing. Even with the different studios, you had X-Men and Avengers, each with dozens of characters as a team-up thing already in place from the comics. Now, I'm, I know in DC there are team-ups. It just is not as, as common, it doesn't seem to me. So it seems like um, perhaps they're forcing it here a little bit. Could be wrong. There are plenty of teams. And you got to remember, uh, X-Men, yes, is assembled right from the beginning. But Avengers, they had to set that up with five movies of origin stories, basically, to get us to the Avengers. No, I'm talking about in the comic. Let me put it this way. Yes, I talked about this a lot. X-Men went the opposite direction. The X-Men movies did three team-ups and then tried to spin off Wolverine. Now back to team-ups, trying to spin off other characters. Marvel did the smart thing, build up the solo characters, and then do the team-up. Now, I've commented that in in the comics, as in the movie, the X-Men are... A team. The Avengers are a team up. That's why right. I loved reading the X Men growing up because I loved the team. I would occasionally sure. read a Gambit or or a Wolverine, but I wasn't into Cap or Thor or Hulk by themselves, and I'm still not in terms yeah. of comics. Now I've loved to. I've come to love all of those Avengers, you know, solo movies. But that's not what I was into growing up. What I'm saying is, you know, there was a 50 year history. Of Fantastic Four or Thirty Year History, Fantastic Four, X Men, and Avengers, as you know, comics that there were consistent team ups going on at all times, even when characters were coming in and out. Sure. Uh, what I would just say to that is the movies. This goes back a little bit to what I was saying about how there's no real connections between tit comic sales and uh, movie sales. These movies are not really made for comic book readers. If they were, they're certainly not anymore. They're made for an audience that is exclusively experiencing these properties through the movies. And so whether or not the Avengers has 50 years of backstory, the movie Avengers only have those four origin stories, uh, movies. That's it. That's the entirety of their backstory. And anything else that's in it that references old comics is just a throwaway gag. You know, it's meant to, you know, be a little wink and a nod for the people who know a little bit more. But you're not supposed to get every Easter egg. It's not about it's not about Easter eggs. I mean, honestly, like the Guardians of the Galaxy that we saw on screen, very recent right. version of Guardians of the Galaxy. Captain yes. America, the and Winter so- Soldier, very recent story. They're drawing from stories from the last 10 or 15 years for these movies. That that's what I'm getting at. Civil War was a response to the Patriot Act. I mean, it was very directly written as a kind of commentary on the Patriot Act. So, you know, with, of course, Robert Downey Jr. as the Republican and, uh, you know, the conservative guy and Cap as the freedom fighter. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm rooting for the DC movies. I don't really know if it was smart for them to announce so many other dates. Uh... I kind of like Jason Momoa as Aquaman, even though I know... I think that could be really cool. Uh, it's not going to be what we think of as Aquaman, but that's fine because nobody really... I, I don't know a single girl our age that doesn't swoon over Jason Momoa. Totally. He's, he's, that's the thing. He's going to be the Chris Hemsworth for DC, I think. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be the, he's, he's, the, he's the great looking dude that you know, guys will love to see and girls will hopefully. So, well, so we'll see. Hopefully it'll, it'll go out well. The biggest problem, and we'll wrap up comic book discussion, is oversaturation. I mean, yeah. you, you already mentioned, also, we've got, I think, seven or eight major comic book movies coming out next year. We've got, um, I don't know if I'm going to name them up, up top of my head. we got Batman v Superman. we got uh, Captain America Civil War. We've got X-Men Apocalypse, which is the one I'm most excited for. I'm not saying that it's, oh, I found the list. Here we go. Um, 
yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying it's going to be the best. It's one I'm most excited for. Um, we got Doctor Strange coming in November, which should never work, but has a great cast. <laughs> um, so because we keep saying Marvel movies, this shouldn't work, and it always does. Yeah, so. I know. It's it's so crazy. Uh, which other? Oh, Gambit, who was my favorite X Men growing up, uh, is being released on my birthday, October seventh next year. I'm personally, I like Channing Tatum. I know some people don't. He's from the South, and he's funny, which is all you yeah. need to be to be Gambit. So I actually think that should be really cool. Deadpool with Ryan Reynolds, a rated R comic book movie, yeah. finally. I don't as long as it's rated R and they get the cursing, I hope they get the... Oh, you need to see the trailer? Yeah, I have. Oh, okay. Deadpool as a character breaks the fourth wall a lot. He makes jokes about readers. Oh, I hate Deadpool in the comics. Well, I hope they get that part of his character right. Yeah. I mean... I'm not sold on Ryan Reynolds. I don't blame him for X-Men Origins. That movie had so many problems that were not his fault. But I am a little bit nervous about uh, trying to run him out as an action hero when he has failed at that multiple times. Admittedly, not always because of his own actions, but well, I don't know. There's a reason they're releasing Deadpool February 12th. Let's just yes. say that. And Probably. And there's a reason they're releasing Gambit October 7th, but fuck yeah, that's my birthday. I'm excited. And Suicide Squad, of course, early August, which has turned into a nice little spot. Um, yep. That that could do better than – I'm not going to say in terms of sheer dollars it'll do better than Batman v Superman, but I think critically could do better. I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe. I, I Suicide Squad, I just hope, has a better marketing campaign behind it than Fantastic Four. There is nothing in the plots or anything that makes me think that they are similar, but in the back of my mind, I have this fear that it is going to be the DC Universe's Fantastic Four. And I'm talking about the new one, the one that came out a few months ago and just utterly bombed. One of the worst-reviewed, least-seen films of the summer, and it was purely because they fucked up how they were going to try trying to market it. Uh, it was badly made. Nobody knew why they made it in the first place. I hope Suicide Squad doesn't become that, but if any of the properties DC is trying to push has that risk, I think that's the one. Yeah, and even sadder for Fantastic Four, and I haven't seen it. I might when it comes out for free, for just because two of the four, uh, Kate Mara and Michael B. Jordan, really great young actors. Yes, they are. Um, so. I love Michael B. Jordan in uh, Friday Night Lights. I'm excited to see what he does with Creed. Oh, Creed is going to be awesome. And Kate Mara was one of the total package of brilliant casting in the martian brilliant brilliant which to me is probably it's either that or mad max for my favorite movies that came out this year uh yeah. i i loved mad max too but yeah. the martian holy cow was amazing mad max was a little too weird even for me but um, i know i liked that i liked how insane it was i liked that it was pretty much all practical effects i liked that it was a kind of a feminist movie um and i liked that idiots on the web got pissed about that i I just don't yeah. like Charlize Theron. I mean, she was great at being the badass, but when she had to like really emote, it, it just, I don't know. I don't think she's a great actor. Personally, whatever, no big deal. I will say, man, this website I'm looking at uh, has a, a temporary Wonder Woman date for June 23rd, 2017. So. All right, so they're at least thinking about they're it. They're thinking I, about it. I mean, if they're willing to keep trying Green Lantern and they're going to do another Green Lantern, they're going to do another Flash, and they're going to try a Flash movie, they ought to try Wonder Woman. Um, I think... At this point, these stereotypes that female-led films or minority-led films can't make money, I think those are just about dead at this point. Yep. Um, 
we are oversaturated at, at this point. Yes. I think that's undeniable. But at the same time, I do think this is a fad that's going to end on its own at some point. We had vampire movies everywhere 10 years ago, and now we get like one every couple of years. At some point, I think the superhero world is going to peter out a little bit. And if I'm a marketing person, if I'm working for a movie studio, why not milk every last damn cent out of this yeah. for as long as you possibly can? Because these billion-dollar movies will fund so many other projects down the line that are probably – some are going to bomb and some are probably well, going to work. And that's a great example of why they're still doing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't think S.H.I.E.L.D. is making much money, but they're making so much from the movies and it does allow them to build some connective tissue on the mm -hmm. show. They're willing to take a little bit of a loss on that, I think. Um, I will say, though – you know, as much of a comic book guy, man, I can't believe I'm just mentioning this to you. This is so embarrassing. I did not see the Avengers in the theater, the original one. I don't know why. I was in grad school. I was up to my neck and shit. I, I had sort of, I'd seen Iron Man 1, but hadn't mm -hmm. seen any of the other solo movies. Really could care less. I knew it was Joss Whedon. That should have been enough for me because I love his humor. And then, of course, I ended up watching it and going back and watching everything. But it wasn't until last year with Winter Soldier and Guardians, which I mentioned are two of my top five or six, right. that I really got into it. And the reason I want to highlight that is those two movies show that you can take the quote-unquote comic book genre and stretch it in all sorts of directions. Oh, totally. And I think Daredevil's doing that, too, a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, Captain America... I'm not the first person to say this. You take away his shield and his outfit. I mean, that could be like a Jason Bourne movie, but really, really well done. You know, yeah, like that's absolutely. better than any Bourne like movie I've seen in the last ten years. It was so brutal and so realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, even with the final CGI fight, which by that point there had been so much practical fighting, you're like, all right, let's get it on. What was the coolest part of that? Him versus Bucky, right? Yep. Who, by the way, Sebastian Stan with like limited screen time in Martian killed it. I thought. Loved him and Kate yeah. Mara. They're adorable. Um, and that, uh, by the way, if you ever do listen to my uh, podcast with my dad about the Martian, I go on and on about Kate Mara. I absolutely loved her. And, and Chastain, who I haven't always loved in the past, loved her in Martian. Everybody was great. Michael Pena was fantastic. He, dude, Michael Pena and Ant-Man. I die. Yeah. He wor sometimes he worked. Sometimes he didn't. The other guys that Ant-Man is friends with seem to me to be a little bit more stereotypical. Well, that was a complaint about Pena as well. Yeah. Well, it was kind of like he's stereotypical most of the time, but then they give him a couple of speeches about liking, you know, Dada art or Rosé. And so clearly, and so they're saying, but look, he's into this stuff too. I don't know if he worked or he didn't. He was certainly very watchable. Um, and I thought he killed it on The Martian. Yeah, I did not um, love Ant-Man. I'm not going to lie. That's fine. It's, I, I do think the second one could be better. We need more Evangeline Lily. They really teased her and didn't use her. Are enough. they actually making a sequel? Oh, oh yeah, Ant-Man Ant and the Wasp already announced as part of Phase 3. You can chuck that up to another Phase 3 movie. Which, by the way, if they finish up with the Infinity War and these movies are still making billions, there's going to be Phase 4 and Phase 5 and Phase 6. Oh, they're already, they're already planning Phase 4, Phase 5. Phase, phase 4 is going to have Spider-Man 2, Black Panther 2, yeah. Captain Marvel 2... You he know. may be saying goodbye to some of the guys from the originals. I think Robert Downey Jr. is just about done with this franchise. Um, I think Chris Evans at this point. No, nope. Chris Evans says he wants to stay. Does he? He does. I, 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 here's what I want. I want one more Cap Solo movie after Infinity War that's like, did you see the Wolverine movie a couple years ago? Yeah, it's okay. Well, right, like but, but I'm saying I want that style, slow-paced drama with Cap. Mm -hmm. 
and Emily Van Camp, who's about to become his girlfriend, who I think is going to be really good. We'll see if that works out. Oh, you're talking about Sharon or Agent Sharon Carter, Thir- Agent Thirteen? Yeah, Sharon Carter. Uh, I would love to see him sort of either just before retirement or sort of during retirement, coming to terms with you know with with uh, what 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 he did right and wrong as Cap, and and of course he'd go on one last mission. But I think that would be. Uh, nice. I mean, people love Chris Evans. If he wants to stay, there's no way they're not going to let him stay. So. No, but all of these actors and actresses, these big ones, at some point they want to go do something else, and that's very much sure. their right. Sure. Uh, and you know, when you have to sign three movie deals and you have to, tr- you know, that's all very taxing, I think, on a person. And so, if they they will probably naturally want to move on. And they'll be replaced by others. The guy I want more of is I want more Anthony Mackie. I thought he was terrific as Falcon. I thought, oh, dude, he's he's him and Bucky are right hand men in Civil War to Cap. He's going to yeah. be. That's the thing. Even if all the big three or four that you talk about, or include even include Scarlet, Jeremy Renner, they all go. You know, going forward, we've got Elizabeth Olsen, we got Anthony Mackie, we got freaking Bettany. Um, we got Ch- Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther, who I think he's going to blow everyone away. I think he's going to kick ass yeah. too. I think he's he's really going to be a scene stealer or movie stealer. And uh, knowing Chris Evans, who's a very egoless guy, it seems like, for a movie star, he'd be happy to have that happen. Then we're going to have Captain Marvel, who they've spent five years coming up with the casting for this. So that's got to be good. I think the Inhumans um, could be really interesting. Which they deal with a lot in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. One of the characters, spoiler, season two, is an Inhuman. Yeah, Scott. Oops. Yeah, okay, so you do watch. I couldn't tell. Yeah. I'm hoping that at that point, if they haven't done it before... The TV shows actually feed up into the movie in a way that it's happening. You know that actually yeah. pays off because right now it just feels like there are nods from the movies nope. in the TV show. Nope. But it's all trickle down. Nope. I want to go the other way. The second half of this season, you know, they take the break for the holidays or whatever. The second half of season three is going to be dealing directly with events leading up to Civil War. I've they've confirmed that directly from the studio, so sure. that's part of why I stopped watching. I'm, I, I agree with you, but if the connective tissue starts, you know, becoming a little bit more explicit, I might get back on board with it. I hope so. I mean, the payoff in Avengers: Age of Ultron, where the whole mission they've been secretly doing is just to rebuild a helicarrier. Uh, to me, that felt flat. That that was not worth. Oh, I didn't even consider. I didn't even consider that that was a project they were working on. Yeah, and you could watch Soldier without seeing the the hints that Hydra is taking over. That's sort of in Agents of Shield in season one. I want something real. Like, okay, so Infinity War is going to be about the the stones. I want one of the stones to show up on Shield or in Net on Daredevil or or That's Iron not Fist. happening. It's not happening. No, probably not. But that's what I want. I want something where if you've actually been watching the TV shows, it is a direct payoff like in the movies in a way I haven't seen yet. Can't do it. Can't do it. You can't you can't take it away from the yeah, movies. In humans, if they haven't done it by that point, they kind of have to. Well, because I the- Seasons two and three have just been about Inhumans. I haven't seen her performance this season, but I'm a huge fan of Chloe Bennett. And my thought all along is that she is going to be the lead in the Inhumans movie. Now, back when the Inhumans movie was like 2017, 2018, that seems to make a lot of sense. She's only like 24 years old. You know, know, so Scarlet didn't become Black Widow until she was in her mid to late 20s. So I think there's a very, assuming she doesn't get sick of the whole thing, I, I I think there's a way that her and other characters from the TV shows 
go into the movie. And what a better experiment, or let me put it this way, what a better movie to experiment with this formula, the Inhumans, which is so weird anyways. I've tried reading it. It's so bizarre. It's, yeah. it's like X-Men, but way less appealing. I mean, the art, <laughs> the, uh, the art is cool, but that's the other thing. You know, it's like, so I've got the X-Men, and then I've got the Avengers, but now on S.H.I.E.L.D. I've got the Inhumans. I'm starting to feel like I did when I was a kid. And one of the reasons I gave up comic books, I was like, I can't keep up with this shit, you know? Yeah. And so that's how I'm starting to feel with the universe. It's not that it's bringing me down. And as I mentioned, last year was a banner year. I mean, Days of Future Past, uh, Guardians, and and Cap Winter Soldier are three of my top six or seven. And so that has given me reason to think that this can move forward. X-Men is doing the same thing with Apocalypse, which is ending one crew and introducing a whole new team of X-Men. So, you know, the formulas are there. I think the oversaturation problem is more a general oversaturation problem than any specific property, meaning, you know, I I will see six to eight comic book movies a year, but how many people will? Well, as long as they keep making 800, 900 million dollars, clearly a lot of people will, you know. Yeah, but if you've got, you got Batman v Superman, Civil War, Apocalypse... But then you got to get people to see Suicide Squad and Gambit and Doctor Strange right. and Deadpool. Um, the, the biggest problem is that, yeah, from March 25th to May 27th is when you have Batman, Cap, and X-Men. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that come early June, after a couple weekends of Apocalypse, people just say, fuck it. Um, Could be. Now they've had to like August 5th to get to Suicide Squad, but I think we're pretty much on the same page here. I mean, there's some warning signs, but when you've got you know executive producers like Kevin Feige at Marvel or uh, Kathleen Kennedy with Star Wars at, uh, at Lucasfilm and Disney, um, I think Disney at least is in okay shape for now. So yeah. this has been great, man. This is, may set a record for the Bizzlecast. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate you... you uh, you know, and not just staying, but but bringing the A game, baby. So my best. So just as a real quick hit, and then we'll we'll send you off because it's been we've talked about comics and we've talked about sci-fi and fantasy. Is there anything um, that you are reading now along those lines, or have recently that you want to pass along? If you have seen The Martian, read the book. If you haven't seen The Martian, read the book. If you're not going to see The Martian, still read the book. The book is really, really good. <laughs> uh, for other genre writers, uh, Neil Gaiman, is who wrote American Gods, which is unbelievably yep. wonderful. Uh, Neverwhere is wonderful. And uh, my favorite writer who passed away a few months ago, and I am still very sad about this, is Terry Pratchett. wrote a fantasy series called The Discworld Books. Oh. They are they are so lovely and so funny, and I still cry because he's dead. Uh, but there's like 50 of them, so you could read him for the next five years. Dude, I, I got I got the first uh, – not the first, but I got like the uh, – I was in England. Mm-hmm. It, 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 this was like mid-early 90s, so he just had yep. a few out. And the, you know how the covers overseas are always better than the covers here on oh, books. Yeah. So I got The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic. And mm-hmm. I was and crying. Even the best. I, I I know, but I'm saying like I was just cr- I was crying, laughing. I, I never laugh out loud reading books. I was dying. I still have some at home. I haven't gotten to yet. Thank you. That's a good good reminder. Yeah, very sad to lose him. Neil, Neil Gaiman is an American treasure. Um, he also did Stardust, which is one of my favorite stories and movies. And uh, yeah, what else you got? Any uh, comic books or or? 
Uh, I read the straight DC stuff. I basically, every other book I read is either a sports nonfiction book because I like to, you know, up my skills. Uh, I read a lot of sports nonfiction short story collections or it's uh, sci-fi or fantasy. Um, I like Neil Stevenson a lot. Um, He just put out a book called Seven Eves, which is about, uh, this happens on the first page, so I'm not spoiling anything. The moon is destroyed. Uh, and so humanity has to figure out how to get the hell off the planet before the moon fragments burn up the whole planet. Um, he's also wrote a great book called Snow Crash, which mm-hmm. is an early predictor of the web, of hacking. Um, we call that it, cyberpunk. Yeah, cyberpunk, absolutely. Um, if you've ever read William Gibson, Neuromancer, it's very much in the same vein. He also has, if you want to sort of a, a techno thriller kind of like almost like Tom Clancy or something. He wrote a book called ReamD, which is sort of about online gaming, but not really. It's just an amazing action story. Uh, like the last hundred pages I had to read in one sitting because I couldn't, I had to know what was going to happen next. Wow. And so I stayed up till like four in the morning finishing it one night. Uh, but it, cause it was in a hundred page fight scene uh, <laughs> and it's just unbelievably awesome. Huh. A uh, quick story with Pratchett, what yeah. you're saying about laughing uh, my first book was called Hogfather, which is about Christmas in this world, which for reader, people who don't know, this is a flat world, which is why it's called the disc, that is kept aloft by four elephants who stand on the back of a giant turtle that swims through space. I'm not making any of that up. I was reading this book, and I was laughing so loudly and so often. I was a camp counselor uh, in training, and my fellow CITs were sitting, you know, we were all outside on an off period. And I was laughing so often, they started wondering if I had gone crazy or something. <laughs> they would like stop what they were doing and say, are you okay? Because every two pages, I would burst out laughing. That's so awesome. It, it's, he writes brilliant fantasy slash, it's almost like Dickensian London, the setting. Yes. It's just, it's wonderful, wonderful reading. Well, and what's, what's great about it is it's, you'd think it's just going to be satirical and mocking fantasy, but that's not it at all. It's, no, it gets fairly dark at the end. Sure. It depends on the characters. The, there's a cop who has a condition that's called nerd, which is drunk spelled backwards. <laughs> and what, it, and what it, the condition is he is so sober that he can't hide from all of the lies we tell ourselves about society. And so he sees the worst in everybody all the time. Uh, and so he is, his books are extremely dark, but the wizards, there's a wizard academy and they are really, really goofy and funny. Um, death is a major character and he's hilarious. Trust me. Uh, he, that's trust me for the readers. You know this already. Uh, so if you've never, if you want to read fantasy and you want to laugh, Discworld books, every one of them is just a pure joy to read. Absolutely, and something I've been doing recently for sci-fi fantasy I'm getting around to is go to Amazon, search up any of these books, go to the paperback version, and you can get you know very good condition versions for essentially four dollars. It's it's a cent plus three ninety nine for shipping. Get four dollars for all of these books. Um, you know, save some trees and afford it. Um, I myself I'll go to the library because libraries need sure. to get. Uh, need more action these days. Sure, and, and and yeah, I mean, I shouldn't just pimp. Uh, you know, go to your used bookstore first and see if they have it. That should be, you know, that should be a a move for sure, um, or the library. Um, so yeah, um, I just started reading. Uh, it's in that genre. I was talking about the uh, archaeology sci-fi thriller, like the Arthur C. Mm-hmm. Clarke. 
um, a trilogy called the Commonwealth the Void Trilogy uh, by Peter F. Hamilton. Gets great reviews. I just got started. Um, that's, I think I've heard of that series. What are the other books in it called? Uh, they're called The Temporal Void and The Evolutionary Void. Okay. Um, yes, it's quite good. It's... Uh, you know, it's 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 six hundred pages, but it's it's very doable. Um, it's it's a little bit easier than Snow Crash, I would say, to say the least. Because uh, Snow Crash is short. Seven Eves is a thousand pages long, and it does drag a little bit. Oh, I don't just you... mean the length; just the ability to understand what the hell he's yeah. talking about. I mean, I, I yeah. you know, I I love William Gibson and, and read him growing up. I, I've read some of those books numerous times. I still don't know what's going on. Um, and, uh, yeah, see the Martian and, uh, just for a nerd shout out, cause I rarely do this in terms of comic books, I, as I've said in my commentaries, I don't really read comics unless it's X-Men. I can get a, get a deal on trade paperbacks, but there's a, a, a trilogy that starts with one called House of M, which mm-hmm. is by Michael, uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who's one of the top advisors to Marvel Studios and has been writing, not only been writing some of the best stuff over the last fi- 10 to 15 years, including Daredevil and, and X-Men. Um, he's, he's fantastic. Uh, and House of Ebb, the Scarlet Witch goes crazy and kills all but like 150 mutants yep. on the planet. <laughs> and then uh, the second two, uh, one's called X-Men Second Coming, uh, I guess there's one in the middle called Messiah Complex. You've, mm-hmm. you've got Cable, Nathan Summers, who's Cyclops and Jean Grey's son from the future, uh, with a, a little girl named Hope, who they think is the first. It's a children of men scenario, essentially. They found the first like you know young mutant born after the Scarlet Witch thing, and they're trying to save it. And it's uh, you know typically dark, but with enough sense of humor. It's amazing after all these years. Um, you know, you bring in Brett Bendis or Ed Brubaker, these guys, they kill it. So, uh, and, oh, and uh, read the Captain America Winter Soldier stuff if, if you guys like that movie. The, the comics are, are gorgeous to look at and great stories. So, awesome. And if I could uh, yeah. make one comic recommendation. Yes. Uh, so, we we're talking about Neil Gaiman. If you have never read the Sandman graphic novels, they are comics unlike anything else that's ever been written in that genre they are unbelievable stories the art is beyond gorgeous if you don't like superheroes these aren't superhero comics if you do there's still a little bit of that too but check out all of the volumes of uh the sandman by neil gaiman it is the most creative storytelling i have ever seen in a graphic novel okay i'm really glad you brought that up because that has been on my wish list forever oh my dear (laughs) so where where do i start where where you know, Start at the beginning. Uh, this is not one of those. It helps to have the. Well, what's the, the beginning? Uh, I think the first series is called Preludes and Nocturnes, or something like that. They are all collected in volumes that you can find anywhere online. Your used bookstore, if they have a graphic novel section, will have them. Oh, here it is. Yep, Sandman Volume One: Preludes and Nocturnes. Yeah, start with that and just work your way forward. I think there's. In Counting Overture, which just came out, which actually takes place before Preludes and Nocturnes, but you don't want to start with that one. Um, start with Volume 1, work your way forward. When you're done with all of those, go back and read the one that just came out called Overture. They are beautiful, beautiful no- graphic novels. Awesome. I'm looking at it now. Very affordable. 240 pages or so of volume. It's like 13 14 bucks. Awesome, dude. I'm definitely going gonna to get that ASAP. Um, awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much. Anything else you want to say to the Bizzlecast listeners? I think I've said everything I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was great to have you, bring in some perspective. This was a lot of fun, because this was the first time I got to nerd out on like all my topics in a yeah, long I, time. I rarely find somebody who can, uh, who can go give back to me as well as you have. I'm extremely impressed and very thankful for the opportunity. Oh, dude, my pleasure. You're welcome back anytime. Good luck with all your endeavors. I'm sure we'll be in touch, and we are out.